When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson, hoping that you're enjoying your summer. For those in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope that you're surviving your winter. Uh, as a wimpy Southern Californian, I'm not much of a cold weather fan, uh, and so I feel for you uh, that may be cold at this time of year. But wherever you happen to be in the world, I hope you're looking forward to some scripture study today. We're, section 84 is where we'll be, and it is another one of those peak revelations. We saw it with 76, just these, these crescendos, these moments where the Lord just parts the veil and I mean, he does it every time he gives a revelation, but times where there's a real view into some incredible doctrine. But to set the stage for this revelation, I need to introduce you to a treasured uh, word in the Halverson family vocabulary. The word is hickle. It, don't look for it in the dictionary. It's not there. At least not yet. Maybe someday. I, that would be my dream. Uh, I was probably, oh, four years old or so. And I went into my mom's room and nestled up next to her and it was bedtime. And I just said, mom, will you hickle me? And she looked at me perplexed, like, Hickle, what, what is that? I'm like, well, you know, when you kind of do that thing on my back. And I must have realized at the time, there's no good word for this. It's not a tickle. You're not laughing. It's not technically a scratch. We talk about back scratching. And it's like, no, I, that's too hard. I just want this kind of light scratch. And ever since then, we're now into the, the next generation. My, my kids always talk about Hickles. Uh, and, that, and that's become our word. Well, when my kids were little, uh, the, the tradition at bedtime was hickles and songs. And my wife or I, or if my kids got away with it, they'd ask us both, independent. I get two rounds of hickles and songs. Will you come in and give me hickles and songs, is what they'd say. And it was just a chance to, to lightly scratch their back uh, and to sing them some kind of a bedtime song. Well, doing this year after year, eventually each child kind of got their song. And it was the song that I would sing to them almost every night as I gave them hickles and songs. And for my oldest daughter, when she was a little girl, I'd always sing her Edelweiss from The, the Sound of Music. She's my movie buff and my, my literary scholar and my world traveler. So something that sounds like an Austrian folk song uh, works well for her. Over time, we got a little bit more, more scriptural or spiritual, I should say. Uh, with my, my second daughter, it was, I'm trying to be like Jesus. And she always does. She tries and usually succeeds. My third daughter is my, is my naturalist, uh, my, my outdoors woman, my, my park ranger. And so her song is Whenever I Hear the Song of a Bird. And each of these songs gets a little bit of, oh, uh, creative twist to, to make it a little bit more close to, to the interests of, of my daughters. My sons, uh, often they shared a room. And so I, I would sometimes uh, kill two birds with one stone uh, and, and have them both and, and hickle both, both backs simultaneously and sing to them both the same song. And it was one of my favorites. And it's from the hymn book. It's Rise Up, O Men of God. I just wanted my sons to do that, to become men of God, to rise up, kind of a Lehigh to his sons. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Uh, and the lyrics of that hymn are so beautiful. I remember in a bishopric I was in in, t in Tennessee, convincing the men, this took some convincing, uh, that on Mother's Day we were going to do a, a, a collective male chorus. 
and all of the fathers and sons were going to come up and sing to our, our mothers a hymn. And they thought that was a good idea until I said, and we're going to sing Rise Up, O Men of God. And they're like, wait, what? How about, isn't there some kind of mother song that we could do? And I said, well, what's the best gift we could give to our mothers, our wives? It's to, to live up to God's expectation for his sons. To rise up and become true men of God. Like we saw last week in section 83, wives do have claim for their maintenance on, on their husbands. Children have claim on their parents for their maintenance. And the maintenance that a man of God can give is exactly what every wife and daughter or son deserves. Now, section 84 is a chance for all of us to rise up as men of God. And it's not just for men. This is one of the three revelations that we usually couple as or group as priesthood revelations. Section 20, section 84, and section 107. And 20 dealt with some of the, it was the constitution of the church after all, when the church was organized in 1830. And here's the responsibilities of deacons and teachers and priests and elders and so on. Uh, later in section 107, we'll see more of the presiding quorums of the church. And here's the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 and the quorums of the 70 and so on. Section 84 is kind of the central priesthood revelation that gives us some very big picture kinds of matters as far as priesthood is concerned. And I hope that we all understand that this revelation applies as much to the sisters as it does to the brethren. So it's not just rise up, you met, O men of God. In fact, in some versions of that hymn, I think it was written by a Presbyterian originally, in some versions it's rise up, O saints of God. So to all of us saints, male, female, this revelation is meant to help us rise up and live into our priesthood privileges. As Brigham Young lamented, we live far beneath our privileges. And perhaps when it comes to priesthood power and the effect that ordinances are supposed to have in our lives, that's one that we fall lamentably short of our privilege. And we'll see some of that taught today. As far as historical context, back in section 75 when Joseph sent out all kinds of missionaries, typically east, uh, to go preach the gospel, very successful in these missions, by now they've come back kind of a return and report moment in Kirtland, and Joseph gathers them and, and hears their reports. That to me was a powerful experience as a missionary, just coming home and reporting to the High Council. I've heard from friends that have served in High Councils and stake presidencies that that's, that's a cherry on the top kind of moment for them in their callings, to see what God has done with them over the course of 18 to 24 months. It's amazing what God can do when, he, when you give him free reign and allow him to really mold you. And, and nothing like, is quite like a mission to, to be able to do that. Well, section 84, as they're assembling, Joseph receives this revelation, and it has three main focal points. One is priesthood. We'll see a lot of that today. Another is the Word of God. That's what these missionaries have been out preaching. And the third is missionary work itself, to understand really the nature of what they just accomplished as missionaries and what they'll yet accomplish, because especially in those days, it was mission after mission after mission. Well, this revelation is for them and for all of us. I love how it begins. Verse 1, a revelation of Jesus Christ unto his servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and six elders as they united their hearts and lifted their voices on high. This revelation, in fact, came at least in two parts. This first part, here's for Joseph and the six elders that were with him. It's amazing that God doesn't require a, a, a huge room full for him to part the heavens. But these seven receive a revelation. And then later, uh, there's, there's a second day of this. If you look at the section heading, it was given over at the period of September 22nd and 23rd. 
And so they, they put the pen down at some point in the middle. Most scholars suggest around verse 41 or so. And then they come back the next day and pick up where they left off with, with a few extra. The, the second day, there's a larger audience than the first. But either way, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And not just from him. It's of him. It's about him. All of this revolves around Jesus Christ and his power and his authority and his word and his desire to share his message with all of God's children. So kind of like we saw with section 76, uh, in our view of the degrees of glory, never lose sight of Jesus. And in our focus on priesthood and scripture and missionary work, never lose sight of the Savior. He's the source of all of this and the purpose for all of this. And why is he speaking to them? Because their hearts are united. They're, they're one. There's a unity there. And because they've lifted their voices on high. They've prayed. They've asked. It's amazing how, how many revelations we've seen where the Lord says, I'm speaking to you because you've come together in, in agreeing upon one thing, for example. Or you're sitting in council and you're seeking my will. Never underestimate the power of unity and the power of prayer to part the veil and open the heavens. In verse 2, Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church, established in the last days for the restoration of... Now, I've hinted at this before in other lessons, but often in my classes I'll put restoration of blank blank on the board and ask my students, okay, fill in the blank, or the blanks in this case. What is the Lord restoring? And I always get the same three answers. It's the restoration of the church, the restoration of the gospel, or the restoration of the priesthood. And those are all excellent answers. They're just not scriptural answers. The scriptural answer comes here in section 84 verse 2. And it's my favorite one. Because it shows that all those other ones are lesser restorations. They are means to an end. And what is that higher and holier end? Here the Lord speaks of the restoration of his people. And that makes all the difference. Why did the Lord restore his church? and his gospel and his priesthood, in order to restore his people. That's what it says right there in 2. The church was established in these last days. Why? For the restoration of his people. The way the verse ends, as he has spoken by the mouth of his prophets and for the gathering of his saints to stand upon Mount Zion, which shall be the city of new Jerusalem. I mean, that's, what, that's the point of it all. That's what all these ancient prophets were testifying of, prophesying of, putting all their eggs in the latter-day basket. It's not just the restoration of the church. That's just scaffolding, as modern apostles have taught. It's God's people. Everything else is meant to accomplish that, to restore God's people to a right relationship with him and with one another. The fall separated us in both directions. Spiritual death, we've fallen from, from God. We're separated from him. And we're separated from one another. The love of man has waxed cold, the scriptures say. And so what is the gospel for? Why has the church been, why has the Lord established his church and, and granted his priesthood authority? Why is he preaching his gospel anew in these last days? To restore us, his children. Never lose sight of the, the ends amidst all these glorious means. God is trying to bring us home. That's what the gathering's for. That's what Mount Zion's all about. That's why we're going to build the city of New Jerusalem. As he says in verse 3, which city shall be built beginning at the temple lot, which is appointed by the finger of the Lord in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith Jr. and others with whom the Lord was well pleased. Think about how many trips the saints have made to Missouri. 
from that original Lamanite mission that, that culminates there in independence uh, to Joseph Smith coming down uh, sometime later and, and receiving that confirming revelation that, yes, this is the center place. And God puts a, a pin on the map and says, this is where the... And, and the focal point is the temple, right? It's not just Independence, Missouri. It's across the, the street from the courthouse, basically. There is where the temple will be built. And we see that repetition here in verse 3. The city is going to be built beginning at the temple lot. The finger of the Lord has put it down there and said, this is where it has to be. If you think about Israel, both ancient and modern, it was always centered on, emanating from the house of the Lord. The tabernacle in the middle of the house of Israel with the 12 tribes extending from, from that sacred center. When Brigham Young put his cane in the soil and said, this is where we're going to build the temple. It's not just this is the place for the gathering of the saints. That's part of it. But this is the exact spot for the temple. I've seen it in vision. And from there, if you've ever been to Salt Lake City, uh, the grid system with 1st North or 2nd South or 4th East or 20th West, well, East, North, South, West of what? The temple. We orient our cities because we orient our lives from the temple, the house of God. It's what they were called to do then. It's what we're called to do now. Verse 4, verily this is the word of the Lord, that the city, New Jerusalem, shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation, which he then repeats in verse 5, for verily this generation shall not all pass away, until an house shall be built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. Now obviously in verse 3, 4, 5, the temple is the focal point. It's going to, the gathering of the saints to build the city of New Jerusalem will begin at this place, the place of the temple. It will be reared in this generation. Now, this is where people are like, whoa, wait a minute. We didn't do that. They were never able to rear the temple in independence. In fact, that, that space is still hotly contested. I mean, when I lived in Israel for a semester in, in college, I mean, Jerusalem, especially the, the Holy Mount, it's like Christianity and Judaism and Islam, I'll, I'll say, dibs. And that is some of the most hotly contested territory on the planet. Well, in, in a lesser version uh, among Latter-day Saints and some of their splinter groups, uh, the, the temple site there in Independence, the Community of Christ, formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, they call us the Brighamites often, uh, and then, or, or the Hedrickites as well, a small group called like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Temple Lot. For short, they're called the Hedrickites after uh, one of their early leaders. And it's like, they're all, no, this is the territory. That's the pin on the map. And, and we all want to stake a claim there. But there's still no temple there. We recently built the Kansas City Temple, and then my ears perked up when, when that one was announced. Like, ooh, we're getting close, okay, that's the outskirts. But reared in this generation? Now, if you want to attack the church, some will go to these verses and say, oh, false prophecy. Joseph, you were off. It didn't happen in this generation. Well, so you could say the same thing to Jesus, honestly, because there were some places in the New Testament where he spoke of things in this generation also. And anti-Christians or anti-Biblicists will, will attack that and say, well, that didn't happen either. Well, what do we do with that? Well, on the one hand, if both Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ rise and fall together, I think Joseph's in good company. I'm more than content to stay in the boat with Jesus. Or is it a matter of semantics? Is it just, well, what did they mean by generation? Is that man's time? Is that God's time? What exactly do you mean by that? 
Another possibility is, well, is this prophecy or is this commandment? I mean, we saw earlier that God commands and then sometimes has to revoke the command because of the misuse of agency. And we'll see in a, in a later revelation that sometimes it's the others, another person's misuse of agency that keeps you from fulfilling uh, what God had, set, had laid out for you. In which case, God sometimes honors the, the will for the deed. If this was a, a command rather than a prophecy, for example, it's like, okay, saints, this temple shall be. It's like thou shalt. Yeah, that kind of language. It, it must be reared in this generation. You've got to do this. And as we'll see the history of the church unfold in the, in the next few months uh, in our study of the Doctrine and Covenants, they were not able to do that. Partly blame the Missourians and the persecution that the saints faced, but also partly blame the saints and some of the mistakes that they were making. We'll even see some of those mistakes today in section 84. But regardless of the Lord's exact intention here in these verses, it is interesting that verse 5 was fulfilled in a less specific manner. Uh, the temple, a temple was reared in that exact generation. Not the one that, that still yet must be reared in independence, but they did build the temple in Kirtland, an original gathering place to receive the law and to be endowed with power from on high. Both would take place there. And sure enough, as was said at the end of verse 5, the cloud shall rest upon it, even the glory of the Lord. This goes back to our tabernacle temple kind of experience from Exodus as well, where you see the, the cloud of smoke and the pillar of fire leading Israel. You see the, the presence of God there at the Ark of the Covenant. You see Mount Sinai itself enveloped in smoke and fire. All of that is representative of the presence of the Lord. I wonder if that's the transition the Lord then makes in verse 6, because then he begins speaking of Moses. And it seems kind of an abrupt transition. It's like all these things about the temple and the gathering and the restoration of my people. And oh yeah, speaking of Moses, and you're like, wait, wait, huh? You, you lost me there. W when were you speaking of Moses? Well, I am now, okay? Sorry, you, you didn't follow me there. Uh, I was talking about gathering people. That just makes me think of Moses. I was talking about the presence of, of God and the, and the cloud of glory that fills his house. I mean, weren't, you weren't thinking of Moses? Come on, keep up. And so verse 6, And the sons of Moses, according to the holy priesthood, which he received under the hand of his father-in-law Jethro, and then he's going to fly through this uh, mosaic line of authority. In verse 7, from Jethro to Caleb, 8, Caleb to Elihu, 9, Elihu to Jeremy, 10, Jeremy to Gad, 11, Gad to Isaiah, uh, 12, Isaiah, this one's an interesting one, Isaiah received it under the hand of God. Now before you jump to conclusions there and, and, a pic, and picture God himself descending and laying his hands upon Isaiah. And by the way, we, we don't even know who Isaiah is. Isaiah is often the way Isaiah is spelled in the New Testament, but that's, this is not the prophet Isaiah. As you see in verse 13, Isaiah also lived in the days of Abraham and was blessed of him. So if this Isaiah, this unknown, uh, unmentioned elsewhere in scripture uh, prophet Isaiah, is a contemporary of Abraham, then he precedes the prophet Isaiah by, by centuries. And how did he receive the priesthood? Well, we don't totally know. When it says in verse 12 that he received it under the hand of God, you don't have to picture a, a personal manifestation of deity himself. Because anything that God directs, it's under his hand. It's like we saw earlier, was it Edward Partridge? Back in, no, oh, it's the section 35, I think, where, where the Lord says, I will lay my hands upon you by the hands of my servant, uh, Sidney Rigdon. Well, they're, they're, they're going to look like Sidney's hands, but they'll be mine. It, it's my direction. This is divine investiture of authority. Okay? It's power of attorney. And so however 
Isaiah received the priesthood, it was under divine direction. It was under the hand of God, along with everyone else mentioned in Moses' line of authority. It's actually an interesting one because if it came from Jethro, it's like, well, how did, how did Jethro get it? Well, here's the list, but, but again, it's still kind of, I don't understand all of these links. And Jethro wasn't even an Israelite. He was a Midianite. He's living out in the, in the Sinai Peninsula while the Israelites are all in bondage in Egypt. Well, how, how does Jethro get his authority? I mean, yes, we see the line here, but even that I'm sure skips a lot of generations as it goes. Because to get all the way back to Abraham's day, you'd need more links than are just described here. But again, if you go to the Old Testament and study Jethro, he's, he's a Midianite. He descends from Keturah, who was one of the wives of Abraham. And so, yes, there is still a link, not through uh, Isaac and Jacob, but through, through Keturah. The, the authority of God given to Abraham is still being passed down through these various lines. And if they all converge back on Abraham, then verse 14 picks up there, which Abraham received the priesthood from Melchizedek. And how did he get it? who received it through the lineage of his fathers. So again, we don't know all every single link in the chain. The point I think these verses are making, though, is that there was a chain and that there are links unbroken all the way back to someone else who had authority that ultimately derives that authority from God, under the hand of God. In Melchizedek's case, verse 14, he received it through the lineage of his fathers even until Noah. 15, from Noah till Enoch, through the lineage of their fathers. Again, there's a lot of links between Noah and Enoch as well. And verse 16, from Enoch to Abel, who was slain by the conspiracy of his brother, who received the priesthood by the commandments of God, by the hand of his father Adam, who was the first man. So now are we okay? Have we traced our priesthood lineage all the way back to father Adam, who receives his authority from God? All of this, every step in the chain is under the hand of God. It's under his divine direction. And I loved as a missionary when, when we would we talk about priesthood, we talk about apostasy and restoration. I mean, months ago we talked about the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood under the hands of, well, under the hands of God, but more specifically under the hands of John the Baptist. The restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, also under the hands of God, but specifically through Peter, James, and John. And why them? Because, again, there needs to be an unbroken chain. And that chain, which was broken by the apostasy, is then reforged with new links to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and from them, then to the three witnesses and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and then look up your own priesthood line of authority, brethren. When I would baptize people on my mission, I would often pull out a little homemade priesthood line of authority chart that I had in my wallet uh, and show them I received my, my priesthood authority from my father, who received it from his father, who received it from his state president, who received it from, and back and back and back until you ultimately find Joseph Smith and Peter, James, and John and Jesus Christ himself. There's something powerful about knowing that the plug reaches the outlet, that you're connected to the source of all authority himself, who is Jesus. This revelation is a revelation of him, after all. And with him as the embodiment of the priesthood and as the head of the church, no wonder verse 17 makes sense, which priesthood continueth in the church of God in all generations, and is without beginning of days or end of years. You see, priesthood is not just the authority to perform ordinances in God's name or to, to give blessings. It's the power of God, the power whereby God has done all things. And no wonder there's no beginning and there's no end. And no wonder there's an essential need for it in the church. 
it continues in the church in all generations. And if the priesthood is absent, then the church is absent too. No wonder the restoration of the priesthood preceded the restoration of the church. And, as we already emphasized, all of that pointing to the restoration of God's people. Well, now that we're on priesthood, let's talk more about the, its subdivisions and what they're all about. In verse 18, the Lord says, The Lord confirmed a priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God. You see, by introducing Aaron in verse 18, and when he says also upon Aaron, and this priesthood also continueth. It's like, oh, there's a second version here. What we've been talking about all the way through th thus far is then Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Smith taught this, that, that all priesthood is Melchizedek priesthood. And as we'll learn in section 107, we only use the word Melchizedek uh, because he was such a great high priest and we're trying to, to protect the sanctity of the name of God. It's God's priesthood. It's the authority of Jesus Christ. But we'll call it Melchizedek for now or in this revelation, we'll call it the greater priesthood. There was also a lesser one, and that's the one that he begins to refer to in verse 18. And he'll explain it at, in detail a little bit later on, but for now, let's get back to this higher priesthood. At the end of 18, it's this priesthood which is after the holiest order of God, which he then describes, verse 19, this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key. Now, keys that we always associate with priesthood, and the key is, is presiding authority, the, the, the power to direct the work beneath you. But in this case, what key does the Melchizedek priesthood hold? The key of the mysteries of the kingdom, which he then redefines, even the key of the knowledge of God. Now there's our key word. When we studied, oh, section 13 months ago, when John the Baptist comes to restore the Aaronic priesthood, he lets his fellow servants, Joseph and Oliver, know that the Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. We'll see that repeated here in section 84. But if the Aaronic priesthood is the key to, of the ministering of angels, then compare that to the Melchizedek priesthood, which, according to verse 19, is the key of the knowledge of God. Now, we're going to try to keep Aaronic and Melchizedek uh, separate in our minds. It's all under the big umbrella of priesthood, and, and Aaronic is simply an appendage of Melchizedek. But to help our, our mortal minds wrap themselves around it, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chart in a little bit that shows here's the two columns, and here's all this Melchizedek, and here's all this Aaronic, and how you can compare the two. But this is our first step in that direction. Angels compared to God. And God becomes the key word when it comes to the Melchizedek priesthood. Look at how often it comes up in the next few verses. Verse 20, Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. Now, two things in verse 20 that are absolutely essential for today. First is godliness. And so we see him again. Melchizedek Priesthood is all about God. The knowledge of God in verse 19. The power of godliness in verse 20. If happiness is the state of being happy, uh, then saint, and saintliness is the state of being saintly, then godliness is the state of being godly, of being like God. And that ultimately is what all of this is for. If, if God is trying to restore his people to a right relationship with him, it's to become like him. It's to overcome the fall. 
It's to overcome spiritual death and renew us into his presence. And not just to be with him, but to become like him. It's the whole reason we left God's presence in premortality to begin with. So it's godliness that we're after. That's what Melchizedek priesthood is for. But here's the other half of it. In verse 20, notice the focus is on the ordinances thereof and not just the authority. We'll see the two of them combined in the next verse, in verse 21. But I'm grateful that from the very start, there in verse 20, it's the ordinances of the gospel that make manifest the power of godliness. You see, here's the problem, and we're just beginning to overcome this problem in the church. Thanks to some amazing talks from President Oaks, for example, about women's roles within priesthood and the authority of God's daughters, not just his sons, to be able to, to work in God's name. As Elder Oaks said in that great talk, uh, if it's authority, then it has to be priesthood authority because what other authority is there? So anytime a, a daughter of God is set apart to function in God's name with God's authority, it's priesthood authority that she's been given. Now that is not ordination to an office within the priesthood, but the point is he's not even talking about offices and ordinations yet. Here he's talking about the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. And that puts the focus on the recipient rather than the giver, the performer of those ordinances. I'll talk more about this when we get to verse 26. Okay, I'm really hoping that see, there's a lot on this on our plate today. I'm hoping it'll all come together and the, the Holy Ghost will help crystallize it in our mind. We, we need a, a sea of glass before us today. We need it all to come clear. But the point I'm trying to make here is priesthood is far more about ordinances and what people receive through the priesthood than it is about ordination. Priesthood is all about service to others. It's not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about glorification of, of oneself. Maybe we go back to the idea of means versus ends. And being ordained to the priesthood is a means. What's the end? To be able to perform ordinances for other people. It's like what Abraham says at the beginning of Abraham chapter 1. Finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me. I sought for the blessings of the fathers. That's what I'm after. I want those blessings because I want those, those, those joys. But then he said, and I sought for the right whereunto I could be ordained to administer the same. Oh, now we're talking about ordination. But what was he wanting first was ordinances, basically. I want greater happiness and peace and rest. Those things come. That's godliness. God is, is happiness and peace and rest personified. And how do I tap into that? I tap into Him. I'm restored to Him. Those are the blessings of the fathers. That's what priesthood is meant to do. Bring me into those blessings. But what else do I want? It's not just about me receiving them. Once I receive them, this is hearts turning, right? The promises have been planted in my heart, and now my heart is turning to my fathers. That's Moroni's version of Malachi 4. That's Doctrine and Covenants 2. Amazing stuff here. And so what's Abraham wanting? I want now to be ordained to administer the same. The order there is key. It's not like, I want to hold the priesthood because check me out. I'll, I'll be amazing. I'll, I'll be the father of the faithful. No, it's, I'm not the father of anything. I, I want to be connected to the fathers. I want to be a son of God. And so I want to receive priesthood ordinances. It's only after receiving those and, and sensing the beauty and the glory and the godliness that comes as a result that I now want to be able to spread those blessings to everyone else, which would then require ordination on my part. 
It's ordinances before ordination. And it's through the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. Being confirmed to receive the power of the Holy, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Being endowed with power from on high in the house of the Lord. Remember the revelation started with his temple focus? Well, the highest Melchizedek priesthood ordinances take place there. Endowment, sealing, connecting us all to one another and connecting us all to our father and mother in heaven. There's restoring my people. And it's all through the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. In verse 21, of course, those ordinances will require authority. So let's combine the two. Without the ordinances thereof, that's first and foremost, and the authority of the priesthood, that's the source by which they come, without those two, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. I mean, God is power, and that power is priesthood. So God is priesthood, and godliness requires the effect of priesthood in our lives, the effect of his power. He's the one making us godly. And without him, there's no chance of coming back to be with him or like him. Uh, that should be obvious. In verse 22, it's described, For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Now, what's the antecedent of this? Is it without Melchizedek priesthood ordinances and authority? No one can see the face of God? Well, how did that work with the first vision then? No, it's what's the, this is the power of godliness. It's becoming more like him. If we are not like him, we cannot dwell with him. We cannot be in his presence. We can't see his face and live without the power of godliness in our life. Now, for the most part, that happens through Melchizedek ordinances. In Joseph Smith's case, in the first vision, this could have been being overshadowed by the power of the Holy Ghost. And if you think about what transfiguration is all about, Mount of Transfiguration, or what translation is, being a translated being, the Spirit is granting you the power of godliness to be able to endure the presence of God during that moment. But as far as dwelling in the presence of God, it can't just be this, this momentary infusion of spiritual power. It's becoming like God. And how do we do that? Through the ordinances and thus through the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. It's all about connecting us to God. Now in 23, now this, there's another antecedent here. What's the this? Well, all the stuff we've just been talking about. The need for godliness. Uh, step back. Well, the need for priesthood ordinances. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. Sound a little like what Joseph Smith is trying to do, trying to teach plainly these truths to the saints that are assembling, trying to sanctify them so they can behold the face of God, trying to sanctify them so they can build the, the new Jerusalem so that God can send his son to return to the earth and, and create this celestial kingdom here. This is big picture stuff. And Joseph was trying to prepare his people just like Moses was trying to prepare his. In essence, it's as if Moses were saying, guys, there's room on the mountaintop for everyone. Don't let the thundering and lightning, don't let the smoke, the cloud of glory scare you away. Sanctify yourself. Become more godly. And as you do, you will be brought into the presence of God. That's my ultimate hope. 
It's a far greater promised land than Israel is. We just have to, have to be prepared to receive it. Unfortunately, they weren't. And in verse 24, they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Now, it's ironic that there's so much angry language in verse 24 about wrath and anger kindled. When, what was it? Ah, I'm so mad, I'm going to bless you with the Aaronic priesthood. It's like we talked about in section 76, that, that even for the, the lowest of, of uh, the wicked, what do you get? You get the telestial kingdom. A degree of glory that per surpasseth all understanding. Yep, that's how mad God is. Uh, he blesses you beyond your mortal comprehension. It's just infinitely below what he wanted to give you. And what is he wanting to give the house of Israel in Moses' day? Everything he'd given to Moses. The higher law, the Melchizedek priesthood, uh, the chance to be in his presence there on the top of Mount Sinai. But they weren't ready for it. There was something wrong with their hearts. Remember back in section 64, God requires the heart and a willing mind. Everything he's been doing, working on these early saints, from promises to persecution, from blessings and glory to trials and tribulation, all of that was to try to prepare them, to sanctify them, to change their hearts. But if their hearts are hardened, that isn't godliness. So I can't be in the presence of God. I can't enter into his rest. The promised land is off limits for me, at least for now. Maybe 40 years of wandering in the wilderness will prepare my children to do better than I've done, to be able to enter into his rest. And I love how he redefines rest, which rest is the fullness of his glory. Think about that next Sunday, when you begin your day of rest and think not, when am I going to squeeze my nap in, though if you're able to do that, more power to you, uh, but rather, how will I make this day of rest a day of the fullness of God's glory? Can I grow into that fullness a little bit more? Take the dimmer switch and crank it up a few notches. Are there a few commandments that he might crown me with? Uh, to make my day more glorious, more restful in the ultimate sense of the word. Well, they weren't prepared for it. And so what happens? 25, therefore he took Moses out of their midst and the holy priesthood also. And what a huge loss that was. Now, this is the golden calf experience. Okay? Moses is up on the mountaintop alone, sadly. He was hoping everyone would come up with him. He receives the tablets of stone and comes down and realizes the people are not ready to have God write those things upon the fleshy tables of the heart, as Paul will later say. What are they doing instead? Rather than preparing to worship God, they are worshiping a golden calf. And so disgusted by the sight, Moses shatters the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. As the old joke says, he's the only person that ever broke all Ten Commandments at the same time. Well, uh, our, according to our usual understanding of this, he then goes back up top of the mountain and says, Oh God, <laughs> sorry, I got a little uh, taken away with the, the idolatry down below and I, I broke the tablets. Could, could you print out another copy? That is not exactly what happened. The second set of tablets was a far cry from the first. Now, the best place to study this is Exodus 34, but namely in the Joseph Smith translation of those verses. In the King James Version, God says, I'll just give you another copy. This is what Joseph adds by inspiration. 
but it shall not be according to the first. For I will take away the priesthood out of their midst. That's what we're seeing here in 1984. Therefore, my holy order and the ordinances thereof, that's the focal point, shall not go before them. For my presence shall not go up in their midst, lest I destroy them. That's how frustrated I am. Like, oh, I, I, I can't go with you anymore. You're not living up to that privilege. You're not worthy of my companionship. But, he continues, I will give unto them the law as at the first, but it shall be after the law of a carnal commandment. For I have sworn in my wrath that they shall not enter into my presence, into my rest, in the days of their pilgrimage. Now this is the tragedy of the aftermath of the golden calf. When Moses came down the second time with a second set of tablets, like I said, it was a far cry from the first. It was Aaronic priesthood instead of Melchizedek priesthood. You could say it was tabernacle instead of temple. Or as we'll see here, it was angels instead of the presence of God. That's what he's, he's getting at. I can't go with you anymore because you won't let me be there. You have to be more like God if you ever intend to be with God. And since you aren't doing your part, I can't be here to do mine. I don't want to leave you comfortless. I don't want to leave you completely on your own. Uh, I, I will give you more than you have. It's just less than I intended. And so now you have angels to guide you. And remember what the Aaronic Priesthood is about? The keys of the ministering of angels compared to the Melchizedek Priesthood, the key of the knowledge of God. That's what we're trading out here. And talk about a, a, a poor trade. Again, better than nothing, but ah, nothing compared to what we could have had if we'd been prepared, if our hearts had been softened and open and ready to, to lay them on the altar to God. But nope, they missed out on Moses, the embodiment of the Melchizedek priesthood. They missed out on that higher holy priesthood. They missed out on, on so much. And God, well, I'm eternal. I can wait. And just like your generation will wander, wander, die, wander, die in the wilderness for 40 years before you enter the promised land because your hearts were hardened and too fearful of, of, of being able to go in and, and conquer it, well, in a much broader perspective, you will wander, wander, die, wander, die for the next 1,200 years or so until Christ comes, the high priest of good things to come, and extends his authority, Melchizedek authority, far beyond the scope of, of the Aaronic priesthood, which his cousin John the Baptist personified. See, that's where verse 26 is going. The lesser priesthood continued, and that priesthood holdeth the key of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel. I used to do this uh, the object lesson, visual aid, whatever, with my seminary students, where I'd have somebody come up, and I'd, there'd be the desk at the front of the room, and I'd say, can you step up onto the desk? And they're like, mm, sure, and they put their foot up on there, and then kind of bound up, and they're like, okay, I'm standing. I'm like, no, that doesn't count. You pushed off. I'm like, huh? I said, yeah, you pushed off on the ground. I want you instead to just step, you know, put your foot up on the desk and then step up without pushing off. And it was so funny to, to all the rest of the students in class kind of turned into these hawks where they're just watching like, oh, no, no, you pushed off because they keep trying to just this slight little nudge with the other, the ground foot. Like, no, no, you cheated. What I was asking them to do essentially was like the deepest of deep knee bends with a one legged squat at full body weight. Hardly anybody could ever do it. I think I found one kid that was like a gymnast or something that was able to pull that off and just kind of 
take his foot off the floor and still be in that squat position, and then all with the strength of one quad, just lift himself. And everyone's like, ah, oh, we're not worthy. Uh, it was amazing to see. For the most part, nobody could do it. And that was the point. Because then I would take the piano bench and move it next to the, uh, the, the desk and say, well, now could you do it? Could you at least step up to the piano bench without pushing off? And then from the piano bench up to the desk without pushing off? And that they could typically do fairly easily. And that was the point of the Aaronic priesthood. To go from telestial life in Egypt to celestial life in Israel, that was too much of a jump for the Israelites to be able to, to handle. And so God says, fine, I will give you the Aaronic priesthood as a stepping stool. That's why Paul calls the law of Moses a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Let me just help you gain some elevation without getting elevation sickness. <laughs> okay? uh, we'll, we'll stretch some muscles and, and build some strength, but just take it up to this Aaronic level. Can you at least live worthy of angels as you acclimatize and get used to living in the presence of God? That's what the Aaronic priesthood is for. By the way, speaking of, of scriptural language, when we talk about the restoration of my people, instead of just the restoration of the church, gospel, or priesthood, how about this one? You, I've, I use this with my students too. Use the word Aaronic and priesthood and preparatory in, in a sentence. And invariably they'll say, oh yeah, the Aaronic priesthood is the preparatory priesthood. Great, wonderful. Not scriptural, but that's a good answer. And they're like, wait, huh? Like, well. There is a verse that talks about the Aaronic priesthood and uses the word preparatory. But preparatory is not what modifies Aaronic priesthood. It describes something else. And verse 26 is the answer. In what way is the Aaronic priesthood preparatory? It administers the preparatory gospel. I think it's tragic that throughout our history, the phrase preparatory priesthood has come into our lingo but not the phrase preparatory gospel, because that's what the Lord meant to say. I, I've shared this with you, I believe, way back in section 13 when we were talking about the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, but I, I hope it bears repeating. I was teaching a seminary class on these exact verses, and I asked my students, in what way is the Aaronic Priesthood the preparatory priesthood? And one young man raised his hand and gave the exact answer I had expected. Well, the Aaronic Priesthood prepares me to receive the Melchizedek Priesthood. Great. It's like, it's like a practice priesthood, <laughs> and, and, I, and I do these things, and it gets me up to speed, so someday I'll be able to be ordained to, as an elder. I, I mean, deacon, teacher, priest, elder, that's kind of the, the crescendo uh, that we're trying to, to, to rise on. But here's where it got weird for me, because instead of saying, exactly, great answer, just what I expected, instead I found myself saying to this poor young man, oh, so priesthood's all about you, huh? And you receive the Aaronic priesthood so that you can someday be prepared so that you can receive the Melchizedek priesthood. Ah, oh, it's all about you, huh? And he sat there kind of dumbfounded and I sat there kind of like, where am I going with this? He gave the exact answer you would have given. It's the one you expected. But that's when it kind of dawned on all of us. It was one of those amazing open your mouth and it shall be filled kind of moments where we noticed the difference in verse 26 that it wasn't a preparatory priesthood. It was a priesthood meant to administer the preparatory gospel. Ah, now we're back to ordinances instead of just ordination. That it's about the recipients and not the givers of these gifts. To this day, I have never yet laid my hands upon my own head. Priesthood isn't about me. 
It's about what I can do for everyone else. It's Abraham's, I want to the right to administer the same so they can have the blessings that God has given me. I mean, yes, you can say that the Aaronic's the preparatory priesthood. It does help Aaronic priesthood holders, okay? And I've heard uh, apostles and prophets teach that, so it, it's good doctrine. It does that. But that is a secondary thing. I used to joke with my, with my, my students, ask the young men, how do you know what to say when you're officiating in the Aaronic priesthood? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, when do you speak as an Aaronic priesthood holder? And it's really only two times, when you bless the sacrament or when you baptize someone. I said, okay, so how do you know what to say? And they're like, oh, well, it's on a card. I mean, it, it's so disappointing when, when the young women realize, they're like, wait, what? You didn't have that memorized when you kneel behind the sacrament table? You're, you're just reading a card? They're like, yeah. And sometimes the card's missing and we're like scrambling, like, where was that in scripture again? You know, and we look over and the bishop's, you know, shaking his head like, no, you got it wrong. Do it again. You're like, ah. Yep. As an ironic priesthood, all I ever do is read. Even at the, when I baptize, they usually have the baptismal prayer printed uh, on some waterproof sheet there at the baptismal font. Sad, I know. But when you get to the Melchizedek priesthood and you have to speak in God's name, how do you know what to say? Well, there's a card, right? But it only says the, the, the barest of minimums as far as instructions are concerned. State the person's full name. State the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. Pronounce a blessing as the Spirit directs and close in the name of Jesus Christ. It's that third one, you're like, um, does this card come with another card? What am I supposed to say as the Spirit directs? And they're like, good luck with that. Hopefully you've had some time in the Aaronic Priesthood preparing yourself to speak for God, and, and it's no longer printed. It, it still should come from Him, but this time it has to be felt in the mind and heart so that you know what to say. So yes, the Aaronic Priesthood is a preparatory priesthood to help those young men rise up, O men of God. Okay, but scripturally speaking, primarily speaking, it administers a preparatory gospel. And what does that preparatory gospel consist of? Verse 27, which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins and the law of carnal commandments, which the Lord in his wrath caused to continue with the house of Aaron among the children of Israel until John whom God raised up, being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now the end of that is like, wait, what? We'll come back to that, I promise. But focus on the beginning. What is this preparatory gospel? It's all about repentance. It's about baptism. Therefore, it's about the remission of sins. When, even when it says carnal commandments, carnal we usually word, we use as a negative word. It's this fleshy, it's natural man kind of things. Well, yeah, but also just carnal commandments, it's, it's the rules. It's what you're supposed to be doing. It's the letter of the law. And that's usually what we associate with the law of Moses. Again, if it was, if it was going to be uh, Aaronic versus Melchizedek, it's law of Moses instead of gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rules instead of principles to follow. So it's largely, there's carnal things rather than purely spiritual things. The spiritual, that's going to be on the Melchizedek side. But in essence, what's the Aaronic priesthood all about? What is the preparatory gospel all about, I should say? It's about the elimination of sin. Every Aaronic ordinance helps purify me. I am baptized. Well, first of all, I repent, okay? And repentance is part of that preparatory gospel. Preparing me for what? Godliness, okay? We already saw that in those previous verses. If, if all of the Melchizedek ordinances are meant to prepare me to enter God's presence and become more like Him, to know God, to have godliness, 
then everything ironic is supposed to prepare me for that. And what is it that keeps me from being prepared? It's my own sin. And worse, it's my own sinfulness. I've got to get over that. And so I repent. That's preparatory gospel. I, I am baptized. That's a, an ironic ordinance. So a, that's part of the preparatory gospel as well. I partake of the sacrament. It's deacons, teachers, priests that, that prepare and bless and, and pass the sacrament. There's an ironic ordinance. And what's it for? It's to eliminate sin in my life. It's to renew my baptismal covenants. Even when I go see the bishop to confess sin, why do I see him? Because he's the judge in Israel? Well, yeah, but also because he's the head of the Aaronic priesthood in the ward. And what's the Aaronic priesthood for? Preparatory gospel, which is all about what? Eliminating sin in our lives. So I'm worthy to enter God's presence, to know him, to be with him, to be like him. Is this making sense? This is really what the difference of Aaronic and Melchizedek is all about. And it's not about the holders of the authority. It's about the recipients of its ordinances. Let me show you that chart that I had promised you. Okay, Side by side, you on the audio only, you might want to go back and see this. Uh, but the, the Aaronic priesthood versus Melchizedek priesthood, all under the large umbrella of the authority and power of God. Let's distinguish them along these lines. And there's so many different aspects of this. The Aaronic priesthood, for example, deals with the temporal side of the church. That's why we had Bishop, there's Aaronic uh, office, Bishop Whitney in Kirtland, Bishop Partridge in Missouri, dealing with the temporal affairs of the church. Melchizedek priesthood, meanwhile, deals with the spiritual affairs of the church. That's why Joseph and Sidney and Jesse Gauss and then Frederick G. Williams are, are uh, called as the presidency of the high priesthood administering primarily its spiritual affairs, while the bishops are administering the temporal affairs. So there's Aaronic versus Melchizedek. How about this one? The Aaronic priesthood is more of the letter of the law, the rules we talked about, the carnal commandments, versus the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the spirit of the law. I teach them correct principles, and then they govern themselves. This is, you're an agent unto yourself. The power is in you, right? Bring to pass much righteousness. Uh, you could symbolize them as the Aaronic priesthood being the iron rod and the Melchizedek priesthood being the Liahona. I mean, the rod is so much more simple and straightforward and fixed in the ground. It's like you got a card to read, okay? The Liahona, meanwhile, well, are you living worthy of its direction? Do you know which, which way it's pointing you in the wilderness? How's your diligence and heed and so on? As far as offices within the priesthood, Aaronic holds is deacons and teachers and priests. And you could say bishops there as head of the Aaronic priesthood. Though in the church today, it's typically high priests in the Melchizedek priesthood who are called to serve as bishops. We saw that kind of cryptic back in section 68, I believe, about literal seed of Aaron and having a legal right to the bishopric. Uh, as opposed to those who are called by the presidency and by virtue of their Melchizedek priesthood, they can hold any office below it in the Aaronic priesthood, including that of bishop. So bishop is an, an interesting one because in some ways it could fit on both columns. Okay, And the other offices there would be elder, high priest, patriarch, 70, and apostle. Those are the offices within the Melchizedek priesthood. From what our discussion about Moses versus Aaron and the golden calf experience, you could put Aaron on the side of the Aaronic priesthood. He's your poster boy over there. And, and Moses on the Melchizedek priesthood side of things. 
That was the authority he held as we traced his uh, priesthood line of authority back to Jethro and on back to Isaiah and Abraham and Adam and God himself and so on. You put tabernacle on the side of the Aaronic priesthood, temple on the side of Melchizedek, angels versus God, and therefore the ministering of angels versus the power of godliness. You could put John the Baptist in the column for the Aaronic priesthood. He was the embodiment of that authority during the time of Christ, whereas Christ himself was the embodiment of the Melchizedek priesthood. Or even if you go back to section 84 and look at the way these two priests are described as lesser and greater, well, that's an obvious one. But it, as I was pondering this, it made me think of Genesis when God is creating the heavens and the earth and a greater light to, to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. And that brought on a whole other level of, of, of insight into this, thinking, oh, okay, so if the Aaronic priesthood is the lesser light, it's like the moon, whereas the Melchizedek priesthood is like, is like the sun. It's the greater priesthood, the greater light. And with that in mind, it was like, oh, wait, moon, sun, now we're back to the degrees of glory. And the Aaronic priesthood is what helps you go from telestial living to terrestrial living, while the Melchizedek priesthood helps you grow from the terrestrial lifestyle to a celestial lifestyle. How does it do it? Well, Aaronic priesthood is the preparatory gospel. That's what it administers. And that's all about the elimination of sin. You are helping people move from guilt to innocence. Whereas Melchizedek priesthood ordinances are meant to introduce you to God. You're therefore moving from innocence to a state of holiness or godliness, as is said in this revelation. I mean, if it's preparatory gospel versus full gospel, then you have ordinances of preparation on the Aaronic side and what we might call ordinances of presentation on the Melchizedek side, presenting them to God. Everything you see in the Melchizedek ordinances have God at the center. If, if uh, Aaronic ordinances were all about repentance and the elimination of sin, all the Melchizedek ordinances are about introducing us to God, presenting us to him. I mean, think about it. Aaronic baptism is followed by what? Melchizedek confirmation, in which what happens to you? You receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, that's a member of the Godhead. Ah, okay, godliness, power of God, knowledge of God. Sacrament prayers, another Aaronic ordinance. What's happening? We are renewing our baptismal covenants, Aaronic, preparatory gospel. And what's the promise? That we might always have his spirit to be with us. Oh, that's Melchizedek, member of the Godhead again. Aaronic ordinances, I am prepared. Sin has been eliminated. Melchizedek ordinances, I'm ready to go into God's presence. I can go into his house now. Yes, temple is Melchizedek place. And so receiving your endowment, the power of godliness manifests, entering into God's presence in the celestial room, those are all Melchizedek ordinances. I mean, I've said this before, but that's why we have two Temple Recommend interviews. It's not that the stake presidency is double-checking the bishopric's work. This is not quality control. The bishopric represents the Aaronic priesthood in the ward. The stake presidency represents the Melchizedek priesthood in the stake. And so by having those two Temple Recommend interviews, you are passing through Aaronic, preparatory gospel, and then Melchizedek. Pre not just preparatory ordinances, but ordinances to, to present you to God. It's like both interviews are signing off on not just you, have you done your job and lived with what's expected of you, but rather, 
Have, has the priesthood done what it was supposed to do on your behalf? Did Aaronic ordinances prepare you and eliminate sin? Did Mel are you ready now for Melchizedek ordinances to introduce you into the presence of God? That's what these are all for. Aaronic priesthood, preparatory gospel, that is justification. You are overcoming your sins of commission. That's telestial to terrestrial. Melchizedek ordinances, that's where sanctification occurs. You're now overcoming your sins of omission, going from terrestrial to celestial. Aaronic ordinances change your status. That's what justification is. But Melchizedek ordinances help change your nature. That's what sanctification is all about. Wasn't that what kept the people off the top of Mount Sinai? Their hearts were hardened. Ah, they're not ready for this. They're going to need a lot more of the, the ironic justification and ironic preparation to get them to a point where they can give a, a sin-free heart over to God and God can then begin working and changing it to make it a heart like his. I remember Elder Brucey Hafen giving a talk on the atonement years ago in conference and saying that the atonement doesn't just pull weeds, it also plants flowers. And thinking, oh, that, that it's like here's the mercy and here's the grace. And that seems to, de to define or distinguish Aaronic from Melchizedek ordinances as well. Aaronic ordinances pull the weeds. Melchizedek ordinances plant the flowers. Aaronic ordinances are evidence of God's mercy. Melchizedek ordinances are evidence of God's grace. Or if we go back to this story arc of mortality, namely creation, fall, atonement that I often talk about, those are the stages of faith. Uh, but to see if, if those are the three, creation, fall, and atonement, and those line up with the three degrees of glory, creation is terrestrial, uh, fall is telestial, atonement is celestial, well then what do Aaronic and Melchizedek ordinances do? Aaronic ordinances reverse the fall. That's what justification is. It takes us out of the level of fall and brings us back to the level of Eden. It reverses the fall. But that's only half the trip. Melchizedek ordinances then take us the rest of the way from terrestrial to celestial. So if Aaronic ordinances reverse the fall, you could say that Melchizedek ordinances reverse the condescension of Christ. He's come down to be on our level in order then to bring us back up to be at his. That's godliness. You could call Aaronic ordinances the principle of sacrifice. And Melchizedek ordinance is the principle of consecration. Aaronic preparatory gospel is working on our outward actions, whereas Melchizedek ordinances are working on our inner attributes. Now, that's a long list uh, and a big chart. I, I'm sure there's more where that came from. In fact, if, if any of you can think of more you know, kind of parallels between the two, please teach me. Put them in the comments. And remember, in, in all cases, it's, it's not about who's holding the authority. It's about all of us receiving the blessings that that authority is meant to convey. We'll see more of that in just a moment when we get to the actual oath and covenant of the priesthood in this section. But as the Lord wraps up this discussion of the Aaronic priesthood, he does mention John the Baptist. Again, he's the poster boy of Aaronic priesthood. He's described there at the end of verse 27 in, in language that kind of raises our eyebrows. We're like, wait, wait, what? God raised up John. Okay, I'm with you so far. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. 
Oh, actually, I guess that does ring a bell when, when both Mary and Elizabeth are pregnant and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth feels the babe within her leap within her womb and just inspired by the Holy Ghost herself recognizes Mary as you know, like, wow, the mother of the Son of God has come to visit me. And Mary's like, what? How, how did you know? Nobody knows. Well, my, my son does. Even in utero, within the womb, he is filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 28 continues to talk about John the Baptist. He was baptized while he was yet in his childhood. No, we don't believe in infant baptism. Childhood would have been at some point when he arrives at the years of accountability. And was ordained by the angel of God at the time he was eight days old unto this power. Now there we start going, wait, what? He, he received his priesthood ordination at eight, at eight days old? Isn't this a little jump in the gun? Well, ordination or ordained, as it says here, can mean a lot of things. Remember, that's the same word that was used for Emma Smith in section 25. It do, this doesn't have to be a hands-on head bestowal of priesthood authority or priesthood keys. This can be a baby blessing, which seems to be more is what's suggested there at eight days old. At that time, a Jewish baby, a Jewish son, was circumcised, given a name. And in this case, by the hands of an angel, my guess would be Gabriel, since uh, he, he was the busiest angel at that time. He's the one that spoke with his, John's father, Zechariah. He's the one that spoke to Mary about her miraculous child of promise. Well, whoever it was, this angel blesses, sets apart, foreordains, you could say, John the Baptist to do what? as the verse continues, to overthrow the kingdom of the Jews. Their kingdom is ending because the king of kings is coming to make straight the way of the Lord before the face of his people. That's how Isaiah prophesied of it, right? That's what we sing in Handel's Messiah. That every valley will be exalted and every hill made low and all the crooked straight and the rough plain. That's just, that's just highway construction. And so to make straight the way of the Lord before the face of his people. And then this line at the end of 28, to prepare them for the coming of the Lord in whose hand is given all power. You see, if John the Baptist was the preparer of the way for Jesus Christ, then think about the Aaronic priesthood that John symbolizes prepares the way for the Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus symbolizes. And what was John all about? Crying repentance? Oh yeah, that is what the Aaronic preparatory gospel is for. John the Baptist? Oh yeah, another Aaronic ordinance that eliminates sin. And what's all that preparation for? Oh, so Jesus can come. God with us. That's what Emmanuel is. That's Melchizedek. It's the presence of God. It's the power of godliness. Jesus is here. So baptism leads to confirmation. Born of water leads to being born of spirit. Eliminates sin in people's lives so they are ready to meet God, Jesus, when he comes. These parallels, oh, they're so incredible. Not bad for a 26-year-old farm kid that never really had any education or certainly not any kind of theological or ecclesiological education. It's all coming together as God reveals these truths to Joseph Smith. It's mind-blowing. Well, 29 and 30, some more kind of ecclesiology. Uh, how do we organize the church? 29, again, the offices of elder and bishop are necessary appendages belonging unto the high priesthood. Now, again, that one would, is a little odd to us since we typically put bishop on the Aaronic priesthood side of the ledger. 
That's why in our chart, I put bishop kind of on both sides. In the church today, we typically say, no, bishop is an ironic office. And as far as its function is concerned, that's exactly where it belongs. But here in, in 29, it's a necessary appendage to the high priesthood. Because in the absence of literal seed of Aaron, then we're going to go with someone in the Melchizedek priesthood, like an elder, who's then called as, uh, uh, ordained to be a high priest. And with that authority, you can function in all lesser offices, including that of bishop. So it's an appendage to that higher priesthood. And then 30, again, the offices of teacher and deacon are necessary appendages belonging to the lesser priesthood, which priesthood was confirmed upon Aaron and his sons. Those were all priests. And so deacon, teacher, priest, all part of the Aaronic priesthood. Then verse 31, we really start picking up speed. Therefore, as I said, concerning the sons of Moses... I mean, the Book of Mormon is famous for this, where Mormon would be teaching something, and then he'd go on this super long tangent, like, oh yeah, where was I? Oh yeah, speaking of this. And you're like, when were you speaking of that? It was like two chapters ago. Uh, keep up, right? Uh, pay attention. Well, when was he talking about sons of Moses? Oh yeah, that was back in verse 6. And the sons of Moses, and he's like, well, according to the holy priesthood, and then he goes down these paths of uh, lines of authority, and well, this is what the Aaronic priesthood was, because it grew out of Melchizedek when they weren't prepared, and they hardened their heart, and what was Melchizedek for? It was all about this, and, but where was it? Oh yeah, sons of Moses. As all you traveling elders have come back to Kirtland to meet with Joseph Smith and report on your missions, I'm looking at you, that you are the sons of, of Moses. So here's, here's my word for you. 31. As I said concerning the sons of Moses, for the sons of Moses, Melchizedek priesthood, and also the sons of Aaron, Aaronic priesthood, shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord, which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation upon the consecrated spot as I have appointed. So again, he's tying us back into where he started this revelation. I mean, from about 6 through verse 30 is like this long aside. Now he's getting back to it. Oh, we got sons of Moses. Were we going to build a temple? What's that all about? It's to offer an offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord. Remember John the Baptist hinted at that when he was restoring the Aaronic priesthood to Joseph and Oliver and talked about this priesthood will never be taken until the sons of Levi and Levi, that's Moses and Aaron. They're from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so the sons of Levi offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, usually our minds immediately leap to animal sacrifice, which I suppose could be a possibility. But we'll see it later in section 128, where the Lord clearly defines the offering that the sons of Levi are purified to make will be an offering in the temple, namely the records of our dead. So when you tie together Malachi 3 about purifying the sons of Levi, tie it into uh, Moroni's visit to Joseph Smith when he repeats those things, tie it into John the Baptist when he uh, restores the Aaronic priesthood, tie it in now to section 84, reminding them of that, tie it into 128, whether the, the temple is, is being built in Nauvoo, they already built the temple in Kirtland, it's starting to come together, oh, work for the dead, Oh, we can save others. That's the ultimate purpose of the priesthood, to restore all of God's children to him. So baptism for the dead, work for the dead, records of the dead. We can present that to God as this off. Wow, it's all making sense now. There's the offering in righteousness. I mean, that, that's mind-blowing in and of itself. From 17-year-old Joseph Smith uh, having the angel Moroni come right up to the martyrdom. Line upon line, precept upon precept, Joseph is starting to understand these things. It's awe-inspiring. And as we see here, 
It's temple-focused, and it's priesthood-focused. We see that again in verse 32. The sons of Moses and of Aaron shall be filled with the glory of the Lord upon Mount Zion in the Lord's house. There's priesthood and temple together. Whose sons are ye, and also many whom I have called and sent forth to build up my church. That's key. Whose sons are ye. I'm not just talking about, some, well, so when, is, when we gather Israel, is that how it works? And then they're going to rebuild the temple and, and restore animal sacrifice? How does this all work? Yes, I've read some quotes about those possibilities and so on. But what Joseph's really getting at here is you don't have to think about ancient Levites finally kind of coming back into their, their, their realm of priesthood temple sacrifice. I'm looking at the sons of Levi. Because you're the sons of Moses, Melchizedek priesthood, and the sons of Aaron, Aaronic priesthood. It's like by, by joining the church, you're joining the family of God. You're joining the house of Israel, the seed of Abraham. And by participating in priesthood ordinances, you're becoming the sons of Moses and of Aaron. These are the, the, this is the, the tribe of Levi being purified again. It's us. Now, verse 33 begins what we typically refer to as the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And again, if we focus on ordinances and not just ordination, I pray that you sisters see yourself in this passage just as much as you brethren do. Notice how he says it. For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. Amazing promise. It's a covenant relationship. This is the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And since a covenant is a promise with two parts, what's our part? Well, we need to be faithful. It's amazing how often that comes up. We need to obtain these two priesthoods. Now, does that mean obtain ordination within them? Or does it mean obtain the ordinances of both? Well, ponder that one. To magnify your calling, ooh, would that mean, what well, must be the, the men, right? Because they're the ones that obtain these two priesthoods and then magnify their callings within them. Well, again, if all authority is priesthood authority, and whether I'm meant to help people uh, with the preparatory gospel or the gospel in its fullness, justification, sanctification, we're all in, engaged in this work. And magnifying our callings Whatever your calling might be, is it doing those kinds of things? Is it justifying and sanctifying people? It should be. And we magnify it. That's our part. The magnifying, if you think about a magnifying glass, I love the fact that it does two things. One is to make things bigger. And we often think of that as far as magnifying our calling. I'm supposed to make it bigger. Well, maybe. It, to be honest, it's probably big enough already. There's such a scope to bless people around you. I don't know if we ever fully live into it. And so magnifying it beyond, I don't know. But the other thing a magnifying glass does, if you were a devious little kid on a hot summer day and you took your magnifying glass and it concentrated the rays of the sun and focused it so you could try to light a little piece of paper on fire or burn a blade of grass or scare ants or whatever you did with it. That to me is an even more powerful image of magnifying our calling. I don't know if I can make the calling bigger than it already is. It's already bigger than I can handle. But I can focus my efforts, concentrate them on the point of this calling, which is to restore people back to God. Well, if that's my part, what is God's part? It's amazing. He sanctifies us 
through the Spirit, makes us holy. But not just our spiritual side, it's even our, our physical one, the renewing of their bodies. I mean, when I look at President Nelson and think, he seems younger than I am. Now, he's out there skiing in his 90s, and more important than skiing, he's out there serving. He is, he's lifting the feeble, the, the hands that hang down. He's strengthening the feeble knees. And his knees seem far from feeble. It's amazing. Is he the fourth Nephite? I don't know. But to see that in so many prophets, seers, and revelators that seem to outlive themselves, to have watched an elder Maxwell with his leukemia diagnosis, and then to have his days extended beyond what, what medical science would have expected. To see a Spencer W. Kimball, I mean, he's such a, a, a personification of this promise, that God will renew the body. I mean, no one thought he would even live to become president of the church. And when he did, people thought, well, this will be probably a very brief and not a very active presidency. Well, 12 years later, <laughs> he finally passed away. I, I remember hearing stories of just so kind of worn down and tired, and he'd be in the middle of a state conference somewhere, somewhere or at all these different meetings, and he would sometimes just find an empty room in the chapel and lay down on the floor and take a nap. Uh, they said that sometimes some well-meaning member of the church would be, you know, wandering through the building and open the, a door and see the prophet lying still on the floor, kind of like, <gasps> what happened? Just, just taking a nap. It's okay. But to see the Lord renew his strength. At one point, Elder Robert D. Hales was with him on a, on a trip, and he was showing him the schedule of meetings and said, yeah, there's this one, and then this one, and then, and then there were some that were crossed out, and President Kimball was like, whoa, 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 Elder Hales, what, what are these meetings? And he said, oh, well, those ones you're not going to go to. And he said, why not? And Elder Hales said, well, they're rest periods. And President Kimball just stared at him and said, are you tired, Elder Hales? And Elder Hales was like, oh, actually, yes. Uh, of course not, President, uh, and I know you aren't either, and so if you want to go to the meeting, those meetings, you can go to those meetings. And President Kimball went to all of the meetings. This particular story was at a, a state conference or an area conference, something, in Bolivia, which is some, some of the highest elevation on earth. And Elder Hale said by the end he was just, you know, trying to, to keep his, his wits about him and trying to keep going. And Elder and President Kimball just stayed at the end of every meeting and shaking every hand and went to everything. It was it was amazing. And by the time they were flying home, Elder Hale said to him, President, I'm sorry, we were not trying to slow you down. We're just worried about your health. We're trying to save you. And President <laughs> Kimball just grabbed that word and threw it back in Elder Hale's face and said, I'm not trying to be saved. I want to be exalted. It's like, wow, okay. <laughs> saved, that's beneath us. Exaltation is what God wants. And so I will be faithful. I will magnify my callings, and I'll trust that God will renew my body, which he did. I don't know about you, but often when I'm feeling just tired and drained, and oh, I've got another church meeting to go to, or I need to go give a blessing, or I need to go teach a class, I'm, it's, what's amazing to me is I'm more energized after that than I was at the beginning. I thought, how on earth am I going to have the strength to do this? And then the Lord just pours it into you. And you are energized by it. You are renewed. Your body is renewed as you're, as you're sanctified by the Spirit. Now, what does all that culminate in? Verse 34. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron. There's Melchizedek and Aaronic, all sons of Levi. And the seed of Abraham. 
Because if Moses and Aaron tie us into Levi, and Levi ties us into Israel, and Israel to Isaac, and Isaac to Abraham, oh, there's the father of the faithful. We're now the seed of Abraham. And the church and kingdom and the elect of God. We talk about tying in Old Testament and New Testament all together. Seed of Abraham, house of Israel, church and kingdom, elect of God. Verse 35, all they who receive this priesthood, receive me, saith the Lord. And then the dominoes start to fall. 36, he that receiveth my servants, those that are called to function through the priesthood, receiveth me. It's like whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And then what? 37, he that receiveth me, receiveth my father. And if that happens, 38, he that receiveth my father, receiveth my father's kingdom. Therefore, all that my father hath shall be given unto him. That's what this is all about. In 39, this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. That's what it's all for. The oath, God swears this, the covenant that he binds himself to, right? I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. It's a covenant relationship we're after, and we're going to bind ourselves to one another, bound in the bundle of life. All that beautiful stuff we learned from section 82. But I'm also grateful for the, the way the Lord describes this in terms of receiving priesthood. Because there's two different verbs he used. Back in verse 33, it was about obtaining these two priesthoods. And in 35 and on, it was about receiving priesthood. Now, speaking for myself, I really do believe that even the obtaining verb can be as applicable to women as it is to men in terms of obtaining the ordinances of the priesthood. Now, if you want to be more technical or more specific and say, well, no, obtaining the two priesthoods, magnifying your callings within them, that does seem to suggest ordination to certain offices within the priesthood. Which, for whatever reason, and we don't know all of God's thinking behind this, President Hinckley, I believe himself, said, I don't know why God does not ordain his daughters and only ordains his sons. There is equality between both genders, but there is not equivalence. And I think that's a good thing. We need each other. Neither the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. But even, even if you focus on that side, you know, the obtaining, we're going we're gonna to call that a, an office and a male kind of prerogative. Well, then what about receive? Receiving priesthood ordinances, receiving the authority of those God has called to serve and direct his church. That's something both men and women do. However you feel about the verb obtain, I really do feel the verb receive is non-gender specific. And, and honestly, the doctrine, our theology would back that up because how does it culminate? Receiving all that the Father has. That's highest degree of the celestial kingdom. And as we'll learn later in section 131, the only way to get there is to be sealed. It's male and female. It is husband and wife. Theologically, I cannot receive all that the Father has unless I have a spouse to receive it with. Now we're talking not just Aaronic and Melchizedek. We're talking patriarchal priesthood where it's Abraham and Sarah where it's Isaac and Rebekah, where it's J uh, Jacob and Rachel, where it's heavenly parents that we are trying to become like. Oh, my brothers, and especially my sisters, I pray we can understand where we fit in all of this and do all we can to receive the blessings and powers and ordinances of both 
priesthoods. They're intended for all of us. That's God's oath. That's God's covenant. Therefore, verse 40, all those who receive the priesthood, male and female, not just authority, but ordinances, receive this oath and covenant of my Father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. He's bound by it. He binds himself to it. We need to bind ourselves to it as well. Otherwise, verse 41, whoso breaketh this covenant after he hath received it, and altogether turneth therefrom, shall not have forgiveness of sins in this world, nor in the world to come. Now, wow, that sounds like sons of perdition, like we studied in section 76. And it seems to be that's the suggestion here. It's not just, I went inactive, or I, I, I didn't live up to my priesthood responsibilities. Notice the phrase in the middle. It's not just that they broke the covenant after they received it. It's that they all together turned therefrom. Remember in our discussion of sons of perdition, can they not be forgiven because God just said, no, I'll never get over it? Or will they, they, they can't be forgiven because they'll never repent. They'd rather crucify Christ afresh, put him to an open shame. Well, in this case, to take the oath and the covenant of the priesthood and all together turn therefrom completely, permanently. Well, if it's complete and permanent, then yeah, no wonder there's no forgiveness because there's never any repentance. The, the verb repent in Hebrew it means to turn. Well, instead of turning back to God, they have turned away from him and done it all together. Well, there is no forgiveness for that because no repentance. Verse 42, woe unto all those who come not unto this priesthood, which ye have received, which I now confirm upon you who are present this day by mine own voice out of the heavens. And even I have given the heavenly host and mine angels charge concerning you. Now, the end of that verse is beautiful. The beginning, the, the woe side, though, is interesting. Because in 41, it's like this woe, people who completely reject and altogether turn from the priesthood. Compared to 42, well, just those who don't come unto this priesthood. Well, again, there's levels to this. And if telestial is turning away and celestial is fully embracing, well, there seems to be a neutral middle where it's kind of a terrestrial approach, where I'm not doing anything bad, but I'm not doing anything good either. Here, I'm not altogether turning from the priesthood. I'm just not coming unto it. Well, that, not as bad as the other, but it's, it's still holding you back as well. And what's it holding you back from? Man, the heavenly hosts, my angels have charge concerning you. Step into this. Put the dukes down. Receive the priesthood, its ordinances, its authorities, its blessings, just receive it. Now in verse 43, he then kind of pivots and goes from our first main topic, which was priesthood, to our second main topic, which is the word of God. So this is kind of transition, because the third topic is going to be missionary work. Uh, we've, we've, we hold the priesthood to be able to serve missions, or we're serving missions to be able to extend the blessings of priesthood and its ordinances. Well, right in the middle is going to be God's word, because that's what missionaries are teaching. And I love what he says here about his word. Verse 43, Now I give unto you a commandment to beware concerning yourselves, to give diligent heed to the words of eternal life. you got to watch yourself. Be aware of yourself. Give diligent heed. We'll see what happens when we don't in a moment. 44, for you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. That's Old Testament directive. 
and New Testament. That's what Jesus quotes to Satan when he decides, no, I'm not going to change the stones to bread. I don't need to eat that. I'd rather eat and feast upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in 45, he's going to give us a, a string of synonyms for what that word can be. Pick whichever one you resonate with. For the word of the Lord is truth. Whatsoever is truth is light. Whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. So in 45, take all of those synonyms and, and pick whichever one. I think often in our missionary labors, since that's what we're going to head to at the end of this section, we think I've got to teach them the fullness of the gospel. Well, some people are prepared for that. Some are not. Uh, there's milk and then there's meat. And where are people on the spectrum of preparation? I love that the Lord gives us all these options. It's like, I just want to, I want to give them the Book of Mormon. Okay, fantastic. Maybe they're ready for it. Maybe they're not. I want to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Okay, um, for, for Christians, that's a great place to begin. But for Muslims and Jewish friends and, and atheists and so forth, it, that might be jumping the gun. Well, where do I start then? Well, how about just truth? Any true principle. It can originally have come from the mouth of a, of a philosopher or a sage. Well, originally, uh, originally would have come from a higher source than them. But as they're channeling this truth, what, what resonates with someone? Or how about just light? It's beautiful how nonspecific light can be. Or even spirit. I'm just, I just want to help people feel the Holy Ghost. And what are the fruits of the Spirit, Paul lists? Oh, things like love and hope and peace and happiness and meekness and patience. Well, I think I can handle that. If you're, if you're a little gun-shy about starting on, on the word of Jesus Christ as found in Scripture, then pick one of the synonyms. And as you're reaching out, how am I living? How do I want to introduce other people to these things? Start with anything that bears witness of, of God. And that can be truth or light or spirit or Jesus or word of scripture, you name it. Now not, notice what happens next. I am fascinated by this passage from about 45 to 48. This is mind blowing. I wish I would have understood this better as a missionary, particularly as a member missionary. Because so often I think, we, the, the way I'll put it this way, we learned, if you served a mission, you learned how to be a missionary in a place like the MTC which is the ultimate place to prepare full-time missionaries that have a tag and stand out and that's all they do and everyone knows, okay, you're here, you're, you, you look a little different from, from most and so, uh, yes, I'll let you into my home and I expect you to teach me the gospel. There's no uh, MMTC, Member Missionary Training Center, and maybe there ought to be because if the only way we know how to do missionary work is through the full-time system, yeah, that, that might make us unsuccessful member missionaries. I sometimes joke that missionaries have all of the zeal and none of the patience. And members have all of the patience, but none of the zeal. And if you were to combine the two, now we've proven contraries. And the full-time missionaries are giving us the, you know, they're jump-starting us and like, okay, we can do this. And, but we as members are not bowling over our investigators because that's my neighbor, that's my friend. I can be here as long. I, I don't care if you get transferred. I'm not going to be. So I can afford to be patient with them and help them through and w watch them grow up in God and 
wisely exercise their agency. Now, if it was only up to me, I'd probably never get around to it. I do need the jump start from the, from the full-time elders or sisters. But man, if we were to combine the two, the way the Lord intends us to, members and missionaries together, whoa, balancing that, that zeal and that patience, nothing can stop us. Which again is why I'm, I'm concerned sometimes that we haven't quite learned how to be good member missionaries. And verse 45 is our first step. Embrace the Lord's synonyms. And if it's too much to give, grant them the word right off the bat, then simply expose them to light or truth or any of the fruits of the Spirit. That's why President Ballard always used to say, just bring them into your home. And if you're a gospel-living family and with a gospel-centered home, people will feel a difference, even without you saying a word. You're not teaching them the first discussion. You're not even bearing your testimony. You're just getting them into your door, inviting them over for dinner, uh, and, and they start to feel things. Now we're in verse 46. And the Spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world, that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. Now let's see if we can un uh, unpack this one. In the first instance, the Spirit gives light to every man. We all were born with the light of Christ. Call it conscience if you want. And what is that? what's that for? I sometimes compare the conscience or the light of Christ to a homing beacon that God has placed within every single one of his daughters and sons. There's something in you that will respond to the call of Christ or of spirit or of light or of truth or of word. Take your pick. It's what you're made of. And this homing beacon draws you to God. It's, it's source. In fact, as it says at the end of 46, if you'll hearken to the voice of the spirit, oh, that spirit will enlighten you. And in fact, what will it do as it enlightens you? 47, everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. Now to this idea of a homing beacon, add the idea of a tuning fork. I remember I was probably elementary school or something, music appreciation class, whatever, where I first experienced the wonder of a tuning fork, where you have this fork that's attuned to a certain pitch. And there's all kinds of different tuning forks for different pitches. Well, when the teacher would, would hit the tuning fork on, on the table surface or something, and it would start to vibrate, and you'd hear the sound, this pitch. But then someone else in the room that was holding the, a, another tuning fork that was tuned to the same pitch, and it would start vibrating. I, I just remember as an elementary school kid being blown away by this. It's like, what? And understanding sound waves and the, the invisible power of these things, that, they, that there's a resonant frequency there. And if the two forks are tuned to the same frequency, then when this one vibrates, this one starts to vibrate right along with it. Now understand what the Lord is saying here. Every one of my children has been given the light of Christ. It's a tuning fork that is tuned to God himself. His truth, his light, his love, his spirit. And if they will hearken to that. Yeah, understand. If God or one of his servants hits the tuning fork and there's truth and there's light and there's spirit and there's love and there's power that goes forth, then within every child of God, 
they have a tuning fork, the light of Christ that is attuned to that. And as you strike yours, theirs begins to vibrate. They begin to feel. And what happens if they hearken unto that voice? Verse 47 says, they come unto God, even the Father. That's the homing beacon. It's like this gravitational pull. Tractor beams, if you're a Star Wars fan. Okay? Uh, and and what, is, what causes gravity? An object of greater mass. Picture the love of God. The center of the universe, in a way. With all things revolving around it. We'll learn more in section 88 about the light of Christ as it relates to the entire universe. But to think about God and his light and his love emanating from him, filling the immensity of space, sending vibrations infinitely, and within each child of God, feeling that resonant frequency. And if I respond to it, if I hearken to the voice of the Spirit, I start moving in its direction. It's like when you were kids and you'd play that game about hotter or colder, and you're looking for something, and the person who knew where it was, like, oh, hotter, hotter, no, 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 colder. And you'd know that, oh, if I'm getting hotter, I'm getting closer. Well, in this case, if I'm feeling that resonant frequency within me, if I'm beginning to vibrate greater and greater, I must be getting closer and closer to the source of that, of that sound. You get this? Honestly, this is member missionary work. We'll, we'll get more about full-time missionary work. We've seen some, we'll see more later. But member missionary work, to me, this is the best passage anywhere that I'm aware of. Because what is it asking me to do? Simply to hit my tuning fork whenever I can and trusting in the light of Christ given to every person that surrounds me just to give them an opportunity to resonate with it, to vibrate along that resonant frequency and respond to it. And, and who do they come to? It doesn't say, and they beeline to the baptismal font and they all join the church. No, they come unto the Father. They respond to light and they and they come closer to the source of that light. They feel God's love and they want more of it. I remember in Tennessee when one of our children was being baptized and we had such a close-knit cul-de-sac. The neighbor on one side was Lutheran and two doors down was Southern Baptist. And I can't remember what, right on the other side but another uh, Protestant denomination. And, and what was amazing was to invite them all to our daughter's baptism. And they came. And I remember especially this Southern Baptist two doors down, he was visibly moved by the experience. It was amazing to, to me to watch. And I'm, I'm, my old missionary, you know, uh, flags are coming up like, yes, he's going to join the church. What amazed me after we talked to him and just the experience he had, he, he was raised born-again Christian, Southern Baptist, but hadn't been active in his church for a long time. And simply being at church and seeing a child want to make a covenant with Christ and a family there to, and a religious community to support them, he just realized, this is what I've been missing since my childhood. This is something my kids are missing and they deserve it. And so what did he do? He didn't join the LDS church. He got fully reactivated in the Southern Baptists. And for about a split second, I was like, what? That's not how it was supposed to happen. Oh, that, that's okay. He's closer to the Father than he was before. And all I did was invite him to come and feel the resonant frequency of the love of God. 
word or truth or light or spirit, any of it, and then just watch them gravitate to that, that pull of the love of God. It's exactly what happened with my neighbor. And to watch that, him respond to that pull was a beautiful thing. He was closer to the Father than he started. Now, does that mean I'm, I'm off the hook and I'm done? And it's like, oh, that was good enough and I never need to try anything beyond it? Well, no, just, just keep hitting resonant frequency. Because there is something about the fullness of the gospel that allows people to continue their progression. That's what the church is for. And that's where verse 48 comes in. I love this part. Once they've, they've had, had resonant frequency, they're vibrating to the same uh, pitch that they were attuned to. They've hearkened to the voice of the Spirit, getting hotter, hotter. I'm getting closer, closer. I'm coming unto God, even the Father, and then 48 comes in. And not till now. And the Father teacheth him of the covenant which he has renewed and confirmed upon you. You Latter-day Saints, you this assembly of missionaries, which is confirmed upon you for your sakes. Yes, the church helps its members, but not for your sakes only, but for the sake of the whole world. Remember Malachi's warning that if the hearts aren't turned and priesthood keys aren't restored, then the whole earth will be utterly wasted at his coming? What an utter waste of a world. If it didn't grow up and, and fulfill the measure of its creation, which was for what? To create a place where we could create eternal families. In this case, why was the church restored? Well, for the restoration of my people. Why was priesthood granted? Well, to prepare and to present to God. It's not about church members. It's about everyone. This is God's kingdom upon the earth. And for the sake of the whole world, I made a covenant with Adam and with Enoch and with Noah and with Abraham and with, with Moses, with, with Joseph Smith. I've made a covenant to bring you home to not leave you forever outside of my presence. That was the covenant from premortality itself when I asked, whom shall I send? And Jesus volunteered. That's why my church is restored. That is why this is a newly restored and everlasting covenant. I promised this would be the case. You see, the church comes in in verse 48, but I love the fact that it doesn't come in back in verse 45. If you need to start just with truth or light or spirit, go there and start with something that can simply help people feel light within them. We learn in section 88 that light cleaveth unto light. And so if you'll simply reach out to them with light and they will gravitate to it, hearken to it, they'll come to the Father. And it's the Father that in His time and in His way will continually coax them towards the covenant, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, renewed upon the earth, restored upon the earth for the restoration of God's people. That's the sake of the whole world. Do you see how member missionary work is explained in those verses? On the one hand, it should take so much pressure off, pressure that's keeping us from doing anything. What's my job? Help people feel the Holy Ghost. That's it. At least that's all we'd have to do at the beginning. Help them feel light or truth or spirit, whatever it might be. And then allow the Lord to work on them and them to work with, with the Lord. Allow the Father to, 
bring them, draw them into the covenant. It's incredible to watch the process unfold. But what if it doesn't? What happens somewhere along the way? What if God has his tuning fork? What if theirs is, is not quite tuned to the same pitch? Well, there's a reality there. Verse 49, the whole world lieth in sin and groaneth under darkness, under the bondage of sin. And what is it that gets in the way of light? Darkness. What might interfere with somebody gravitating to God? Well, if they're chained back to sin, then they can't simply flow forward. And no wonder the adversary is so intent on using the chains of hell to keep us from gravitating heavenward. In fact, didn't the Lord teach us something along those lines back in section 50, which was such a great revelation on light and so on? Yeah, back in verse 24. That which is of God is light. And if you receive light and continue in God, there's the tractor beam, there's the resonant frequency, there's responding to it. They receive more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. That's how you know truth. That's how you chase darkness from among you. We'll actually see more of that when we get to section 93 in a couple of weeks. And how light and darkness and how good and evil and God and the Satan are just... Oh, it's this tug of war, and Satan is doing his absolute best to keep darkness in front of you, to keep you from responding to light, to bind you with, with sin, under the bondage of sin, so that you cannot, you can't yield to the enticings of the Holy Ghost. That's the word that King Benjamin uses. Just yield. That's not supposed to be some major d d verb. It's more of a passive it's like merging onto the freeway. Now, when you were learning to drive, that was the scariest moment on, on earth, right? Getting on the freeway, how do I merge? How do I yield to another car and then just kind of come in behind him? Now, you do it while you're changing the radio and, and eating your burger. Hopefully not, okay? Uh, but it's become second nature to us. We're just, it, it's easy to merge. You just yield, just let somebody go. Well, yielding to the enticings of the Holy Ghost, just let the Spirit guide you. Just Give in to the better angels of your nature. Just submit to the pull of God, the draw of Christ. Just follow me. And people came. It's amazing how simple that invitation was from Jesus. Just come and see. What could possibly keep you from, from flowing in this divine direction? Oh, well, there's our answer. Darkness. Sin. In fact, verse 50, by this you may know they are under the bondage of sin, because they come not unto me. It's like, why isn't this tuning fork vibrating? I mean, that one is. What's wrong with it? Oh, it must not be tuned to the same frequency. Now, we're, but I thought we were all tuned to the same frequency. The Spirit of Christ is within all of us. The light of Christ is given to every man. Well, yeah, but something happens if that tuning fork gets corroded. And that's actually how you can tell if it has been corroded by sin. It doesn't vibrate. It's not, there's no resonant frequency there. It's keeping me from responding to the Lord's pull. I don't yield. Verse 51, whoso cometh not unto me is under the bondage of sin. There must be something keeping them back because that's not who they are. 
They fought for Christ in the war in heaven. They yielded to the will of God. What's keeping them from doing that now? This is a sin against self. It's under the bondage of sin. Verse 52 then, he gives us another example of this. Whoso receiveth not my voice is not acquainted with my voice. It's not of me. And that's another way you can distinguish sheep from goats. My sheep hear my voice and know who I am and come to me. The goats, uh, they're just out busy chewing on stuff. (laughs) In 53, by this you may know the righteous from the wicked, and that the whole world groaneth under sin and darkness even now. That's what amazes me about, about converts. You out there who, who joined the church later in life, it's because your tuning fork. It's amazing. You responded to light. You felt spirit or heard word or recognized truth or saw or found Jesus and you gravitated to it. There was something inside of you that vibrated with the the pull of God and you came and nothing could hold you back. Not even your previous sin. You repented of it. You left it behind. You You went through these preparatory gospel ordinances and you've come to know God. My hat's off to each of you. You know the shepherd's voice. The way Jesus said it back in John, to those who reject him, Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. To me, this is the ultimate differentiation, the way to distinguish. And it's not a matter of what church do you belong to, and well, why aren't you LDS, and what denomination is that? No, it's simply how do you respond to light? to spirit, to truth. How do, maybe well, let's even take it down a notch. How do you respond to conscience? Remember Laman and Lemuel were past feeling? I believe that Paul at one point talks about their consciences are seared with a hot iron. It's like they can't feel anything. That's a scary place. They've become tone deaf to the call of the Good Shepherd. Their tuning fork doesn't resonate with anything. The homing beacon has somehow been turned off and there's no draw anywhere. And they, there's no feeling of guilt for their own sin. That's what Mormon describes his people as the very end of it all. The spirit has ceased striving with them. Well, why? Because he's not going to fight with them anymore because they've surrendered to the lesser version of themselves. They've surrendered to sin. They're in its bondage. And they can't even feel the prick of conscience anymore. That's a a scary place to be. Whether or not you accept the Book of Mormon when I give it to you, whether or not you want to meet with the missionaries, do you at least respond to the call of conscience, the better angel of our nature? Now, verse 54, he's going to talk more directly to them. Because on the one hand, they might get away with this thought of, well, that's just the world that groaneth in sin. Yeah, I I met a lot of them on my mission, and yep, that's why they rejected me. They wouldn't recognize the Lord's voice, and man, I kept hitting my tuning fork, but none of theirs vibrated. There's something wrong with them. Well, the Lord, as he so often does, says, yeah, there is something wrong with them. Just like there's something wrong with you. What we, huh? We responded. We're here. Well, yeah, but remember it grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day? Uh, You're brighter than you were, but you're still dim compared to where I want to get you. And here's the problem. Verse 54. 
your minds in times past have been darkened. Mm, we've been talking about darkness and light. Yours have been darkened. Why? Because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received. So here's the two problems that the members of the church are up against. You've been struggling with some unbelief, a lack of faith that has darkened your mind, and you've been treating lightly the things you've received. You've taken for granted the incredible gifts that I've, been, that I've given you. And as a result, 55, this vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. Now, he mentioned unbelief in 54 and repeated unbelief in 55. In 55, when he mentions vanity, maybe that connects with the other half. You were treating lightly the things that you've received. Oh, so did I give them to you in vain? Is there vanity? Was there no purpose in you accepting them to begin with? Because they certainly haven't changed your life since then. You haven't let them. And as a result, the whole church is under condemnation. And then he repeats it, 56. This condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. Whole church, 55. Even all, 56. Yeah, quit complaining about the Missourians all around you. Quit complaining about the persecution we faced right around us here in Kirtland. Quit complaining about people who rejected your message on your missions to the east. Where much is given, much is required. They weren't given as much, but you were. And was it vain for me to give you so much? Because you're not doing with it what I require. And as a result, you're under condemnation. Yeah, you, the church, the whole church. No, don't, don't, don't think, well, no, I'm not guilty. Yeah, you are. Because you're in this thing together. That's what Zion is, right? One heart, one mind. None of you are justified until all of you are justified. We got to work on this. And what's this condemnation? He'll answer it most specifically in verse 57. They shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember. So repent, get over your unbelief. Remember, stop taking for granted. Remember the new covenant, even the book of Mormon and the former commandments which I have given them, not only to say, but to do according to that which I have written. Ah, now we've nailed it. What is the, the thing specifically that they are neglecting, that they're treating lightly, that they're approaching with a degree of unbelief and, and vanity? Number one, the Book of Mormon. That is the new covenant that I've renewed. It's for the gathering of Israel. It's to restore my people to me. That's the purpose of it, to convince the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. That's the message of this great keystone scripture a single most important tool God will use to gather his elect. It's just interesting when he, speaking of word as one of the synonyms for light and spirit and so forth, God can hit the biblical tuning fork and people vibrate all over the place without even doing it consciously. Because in many cases, it's more of a cultural commitment. Speaking of treating things lightly, oh, it's it's crazy how the degree of biblical illiteracy there is, especially in the United States, which was a nation built upon on biblical belief. When I was at Divinity School, I, was, I took a class on the history of the Bible in America, and the first week the professor asked us all to introduce ourselves, and it was all mostly Protestant ministers in training. 
Now, and me, Latter-day Saint, and a, another guy that was a member of the Community of Christ, former RLDS. I'm like, hey, cousins, what's up? Uh, and the professor at the beginning asked, okay, we're going to study the Bible in and throughout American history. How many of you have actually read it cover to cover? And two hands went up, mine and the RLDS guy. And the professor literally started laughing out loud saying, do you guys not sense the, the irony here? That the only two people in the room who've read the entire Bible come from religions that the rest of you accuse of not believing in it? This is hilarious. Protestants, you might want to study your own book. Sola Scriptura is what the Reformation was built on. Go read it. I mean, we live in a day, sadly, that people take the Bible for granted. Even those who pay it lip service and say they believe in it, it is still unbelief and darkened minds and treating lightly what they've received. But again, that's, that's them. What about us, children of Zion? Do we treat the Book of Mormon lightly? Do we study it? Do we feast upon its words? And not just to give it lip service and talk about it like it says at the end, not only to say, but to do according to what I've written. Now, this isn't Book of Mormon alone, because it also adds, and the former commandments which I have given them. Now, this is still 1835, so there's no such thing as the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. To this point, it's called the Book of Commandments. And so when he says the former commandments, he could be referring to all of the revelations in the, in, that we have so far from Joseph Smith. Former commandments could include Old and New Testament. I mean, all the things that God has given us throughout the centuries. Resonant frequency, every single one. Do we treat all those things lightly? In fact, if you go way back, uh, all the way to section 3 and section 10, when we were talking about the lost 116 pages, and I talked about kind of Satan's game plan in trying to keep us away from God's Word, since the Word is where so much good begins. And, so, and, and here's Satan as the destroyer. So step one, plan A, was to destroy Joseph Smith, which he tried to do in the, in the, at the Sacred Grove and was unsuccessful. So he backs up, retreats, and then regroups and reattacks. And plan B was, well, fine, let's destroy the Book of Mormon. And as Joseph is leaving the Hill Cumorah with it, uh, it attacked left and right by all kinds of mobbers. And, but he got through it. So uh, the adversary is like, darn it, I didn't, plan B didn't work. Well, let's go to plan C. I couldn't destroy the prophet, couldn't destroy the book. Well, let's destroy the credibility of the book. Yeah, let's, let's take the 116 pages and make all these changes to it. So when Joseph retranslates, it'll be different. And people won't have... Fine, the book exists. Yeah, there's a prophet, and he's still alive, darn it. Yes, the book is out there, and that will always keep me up at night. But it's not doing anything, because the people don't believe in it. There is no credibility to the book. Well, the Lord got them through that one, too, and he doesn't retranslate the 116 pages. Just pick up where we left off, and don't worry, they stole, there were two versions, and they stole the lesser of the two. Haha. <laughs> uh, well, Satan, again, never gives up. So what was plan D? Fine, let them have their prophet, let them have their book. In fact, even let them believe in it. Just don't do anything with it. Don't study it. And if they do study it, heaven forbid, then plan E, at least don't live according to the things that you're learning. You see section 84, we're already in plan D and E. You're, you're treating lightly what you've been given. By the way, I can't help but notice the date on this revelation. Much of it was received on September 22nd, and some was received on September 23rd. Now, September 22nd, when this revelation starts to come, was a date that would have been 
seared into Joseph Smith's memory. It's, it's like how we're supposed to feel about our, our, our wedding anniversary, okay? Mine's seared in there, February 12th. I'll never forget, okay? Because uh, husbands get busted if they forget. I've always, the, the old joke is that women somehow can forget the pains of childbirth, like moments after the baby comes. But they'll never forget if you forget your anniversary. Well, for Joseph Smith, why was September 22nd such a memorable date? Well, it was September 21st, the night before, when back in 1823, a young 17-year-old Joseph was praying about his state and standing before God. And the angel Moroni came and told him about a book that was deposited not too far away and said, tomorrow, yeah, on the 22nd of September, why don't we meet there at the, at the hill and, and get to work on this? Oh, next day. You're not ready for it? That's okay. Come back next year. On September 22nd, we'll try it again. No, still not ready? How about next year? And the year after that. And for four years, five if you include the first, uh, he's remembering September 22nd, the fall equinox. D equal degrees of darkness and light as I am being placed in the middle and having to choose which direction I will gravitate toward. Whose tuning fork will I respond to? On that September 22nd date, five years to the day after finally retrieving the gold plates, the saints are told, you're treating it lightly. That vanity, why did I even give you the book? This is the voice from the dust. It's not supposed to be collecting dust. Everything Joseph went through to give it to you. Everything that the, the Nephites went through for a thousand years to produce this, this powerful call to come unto Christ. What's it for? I cannot think that it's coincidental that this is the time where they are condemned. You think the book served its purpose in bringing you to Joseph Smith? That wasn't the point. Well, it was a sub-point. It was a means to a greater end. The point was to bring you to Christ. And yet so many of the saints are like, well, the Bible's always, always done that for me. And, and the fact that there's a new prophet upon the earth, and the Book of Mormon proves that Joseph was a prophet. And now, I mean, I can come to him and I can eliminate the middleman. I don't even need the Book of Mormon anymore. Well, that's kind of what had been happening for the past five years. And here, the saints are not just called, they're condemned. Yea, everyone. Now, I don't know how old you are, but me, I was born in 1975. The year that an apostle, Ezra Taft Benson, gave a landmark address on the Book of Mormon, which I don't know if that kind of alerted the saints to the future of what an Ezra Taft Benson presidency of the church would hold. But 10 years later, when President Benson became president of the church, and everyone assumed he was probably going to keep talking about uh, the Constitution and freedom and America. I mean, this was not just the apostle, but he was a, a cabinet secretary in the Eisenhower administration. And he was as, as freedom and patriotic and, and anti-communist as you could possibly get. And everybody just assumed, yep, he's going to keep talking, talking about that. But like the moment he became a president of the church, the, the switch flipped and it was Book of Mormon with blinders on to almost anything else. It's like, no, this must be the focus. And throughout his presidency, that's all he ever talked about. 
least that's what it seemed like to me as a kid. He was my prophet as a teenager growing up. And I remember sometimes general conference, he'd get up and, and we'd kind of, you know, uh, rib somebody next to us and go, <laughs> wonder what he's going to talk about. And the eyes would roll like, duh, he's going to talk about the Book of Mormon. I remember one, one conference talk, he's like, you know what, today I'd like to talk about, and we're like, uh, wait for it. And he's like, the Doctrine and Covenant. And we're like, whoa, he's going to a different book of scripture? Kind of shocker. And then he's like, and it's message of the keystone text, the Book of Mormon. We're like, oh, okay. He's going to use the, book of Mor the Doctrine and Covenants to talk about the Book of Mormon, which actually is, is a really cool thing to do. But that was President Benson for you. It was Book of Mormon all the time. And guess what verses he quoted frequently? These ones from section 84. He would challenge us to, to dust off our voice from the dust and really establish it as the keystone of our faith and our membership in the church. Study the Book of Mormon more. And so we do it. And, and everybody in the church seemed like we were studying the Book of Mormon like crazy. And then six months later, another general conference, and President Benson would be like, no, nope, we're still under condemnation. Upon the children of Zion, yea, even all. And we're like, ah. Now, I actually remember years later, hearing President uh, Packer's famous statement, that we're more often punished by our sins than for them. That the punishment is inherent in the sin. God doesn't have to come in after the fact and, and spank us or send us to our room. Okay? It's, the sin itself should be teaching us its own lesson, and I don't want to be here. Well, take that along with this verse of condemnation. And if we're being condemned for treating lightly the Book of Mormon, but we're being punished by that neglect more than for it, there's something to that. It's not like God's like up there frustrated, like, you know how much time and effort we poured into that book and you're not reading it? Come on. No, it's, it's something beyond that. It's not like I'm mad at you and I'm going to chastise you for, for neglecting it. It's you're punishing yourself because of your neglect of the Book of Mormon. It's not doing for you what it was designed to do, which was to to persuade you to come unto Christ. Then Elder Oaks gave an amazing talk where he said, I've read every t talk from President Benson and tried to make sense of why does he emphasize the Book of Mormon so much and what's up with this condemnation? And that's what he said. The point of the Book of Mormon is the teachings of Jesus. So we're not being punished for our neglect of the Book of Mormon. We're being punished by our neglect of Jesus Christ and the power that could be coming into our lives if we were studying his message in the Book of Mormon, there is no more Christ-centered book on the planet than the Book of Mormon. It is the new covenant. So study it. Feast upon it. Say it. Do it. Live according to its message. And as a result, what will come? Verse 58. That they may bring forth fruit, meat for their Father's kingdom. That's what it's doing in us. Otherwise, there remaineth a scourge and judgment to be poured out upon the children of Zion. And that's what President Benson was trying to help us avoid. It's what Joseph Smith was trying to help the early saints avoid. Especially for a group that at the time, every time they thought the word Zion, they thought specifically of Independence, Missouri. That's the center place. That's where we're supposed to build. And yet here, judgments, a scourge will be poured out upon the children of Zion. Well, what happened within the next, what, six years? There was a scourge and judgment upon the saints in Zion, namely a, an extermination order that drove every Latter-day Saint out of the state. 
hunkering down in a Mississippi swamp on the Illinois side of the river that was far away from yet becoming a beautiful Nauvoo. In fact, if you look at verse 59, For shall the children of the kingdom pollute my holy land? Verily I say unto you, Nay. Remember, we've talked about this often, that there has to be a Zion people before there's ever really a Zion place. Zion has to become your attitude before you're worthy of it becoming your address. And they weren't doing it. And part of the reason now is neglecting what the Book of Mormon would teach you about coming unto Christ and becoming Christ-like. It's not working in you the way it was designed to, because you're not letting it. This is all in vain. And, and I'm not going to let people like that pollute my holy land. My la the land is holy. I put my finger on it. Okay? That, the temple site's going to hold. But until you hold to my iron rod, my word, and say it, and do it, and live it, and bring forth fruit, meat for my Father's kingdom, then you can't build my Father's kingdom there. That's not the new Jerusalem. And, and I'm not going to let you pollute that land. There will be a scourge. There will be a judgment. And the land will remain, but you won't remain on it. There's actually a haunting phrase in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament where it speaks of the original holy land, not the new Jerusalem, but the first Jerusalem, not the, the new world Zion, but the old world Zion. And to an ancient Israel struggling with its own apostasy, the Lord warns this, and the land is defiled. Here we see the word polluted, same idea. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereon upon it, and then brace yourself for this mental image. And the land itself vomited out her inhabitants. Wow, can, can you picture that? It's almost like this volcano kind of mental image in my head. The, the, the land is vomiting out its inhabitants. You're, you're not going to be here to defile it. I don't want you polluting. Get off. Get out. In fact, a few verses later, the Lord says, you've got to keep the commandments that the land spew not you out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. Spewed out the Canaanites to make room for the, the Israelites, but spewed out the Israelites uh, because they weren't being faithful there either. I mean, the Assyrians come in and scatter in the, nor the northern kingdom. There goes the lost ten tribes. The Babylonians come and, and destroy Jerusalem and bring the, the southern kingdom captive back to Babylon. The land of Israel did a lot of, had an upset stomach frequently, sickened by the sin of her supposedly celestial inhabitants. And to the point that the land, it spewed them out, it vomited them out until the, the holy land was no longer possessed by the unholy. Well, what's happening in Zion? I, I can't help but think of the extermination order. Yes, there were problems among the Missourians, plenty, believe me. But again, he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation. They didn't have that much light, but the saints, they sure did. They had the Book of Mormon and the former commandments, such sources of light, and they treated them lightly. And as a result, greater condemnation, the land of Zion, the state of Missouri, vomited out the Latter-day Saints. I am grateful that the extermination order was officially rescinded in 1976. That's kind of a bicentennial gift of America. Like, yeah, land of the free? Maybe we should take that seriously. Uh, sorry we kicked you guys out. <laughs> well, Missouri apologized to the church. Has the church apologized to God? The God of the land of Zion apologized for treating lightly 
the incomparable gift he's given us in his word. Study it. Say it. Do it. Live it. Preach it. Bring forth fruit, meat for the Father's kingdom. I do believe, my friends, that we're getting there. I'm so grateful for all that President Ezra Taft Benson did. He was my childhood prophet, and I can still hear him in my mind testifying of the importance of the Book of Mormon. I love the Book of Mormon because President Benson helped me fall in love with it by encouraging me as a teenager to spend time feasting upon its words every day. He turned me into a, a disciple of Christ through the Book of Mormon. And he turned me into a missionary, teaching others the Book of Mormon, which is exactly what the Lord then shifts his attention to in the remainder of this revelation. You missionaries, you just came back. You're ready to re-up and head out again. Now that you've been, now that you understand what priesthood is really all about and the ordinances that you are extending to others, now that you understand the importance of the word that you've preached and that I've given to you, what kind of missionaries ought you to be? Start in verse 60. Verily, verily, I say unto you, who now hear my words, which are my voice, blessed are ye inasmuch as you receive these things. We saw that receive verb back in the oath and covenant of the priesthood. Will you receive these things? If you do, you receive me and the Father and all that the Father has, his kingdom. Will you receive these things? Verse 61, for I will forgive you of your sins. Even that condemnation I just warned you about with this commandment, that you remain steadfast in your minds, in solemnity, and the spirit of prayer, in bearing testimony to all the world of those things which are communicated unto you. You see how forgiveness will come? Repentance, and repentance is change. So to go from treating something lightly, well now let's take it in solemnity going from a mind that was darkened in times past to a mind that remains steadfast, going from taking the Book of Mormon in vain to going and bearing testimony to all the world, these marvelous truths that have been communicated to you. Verse 62, Therefore go ye into all the world, and unto whatsoever place ye cannot go, ye shall send, that the testimony may go from you into all the world unto every creature. It's a beautiful distinction between going and sending. I love that the Lord gives us that, that extra option. There may be some places closed off to you. If you can't go there, then send. Write a letter. Now, it's amazing how many of the early missionaries were called to go on publishing missions. The Times and Seasons, the, the Messenger and Advocate, the, the Evening and Morning Star, or being called to go to New York and start a church newspaper there or going to England and begin publishing things there, or going to France and starting a French language newspaper in the early days of the church. It's amazing how much of it was, I, we can't get everywhere, but we can send. And if that was true of printing presses in the 19th century, imagine the power of the internet or social media in the 21st. I've said it in, on this channel a lot, a lot, especially last year when it was even harder then than it, is, than it still is now. I would so much prefer just being in a classroom with my students. I still feel like a fish out of water staring into a camera. Whereas when I'm in a classroom, it's just, there's, it's the zone. 
and I'm with my students and I'm not thinking and overthinking and wondering. It's just, I'm just teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ face to face to people that I love. But I can't go everywhere. None of us can. And especially when COVID came to the point of I couldn't even go to the institute to teach, to teach classes there. I am so grateful for technology, as frustrating as it can be at times, to allow me to send things to students and former students and newfound friends. It's amazing to me to see what technology is allowing us to do, to flood the earth with truth and light and spirit and word and Jesus. To see people gravitating to the gospel because of the resonant frequency of what we send to them. And you and I can do so much more of that. As you like or share, as you, as you create through social media things that you're learning through your, own, through your own study of scripture, your own living of the gospel, pictures of a gospel-centered home, of a family that's joyful together. It hit me years ago when, when thinking of the phrase from Hebrews 12 about a cloud of witnesses, because that's when, when internet storage became big and it was like, oh, it's all in the cloud. And, and, and understanding what that meant. I'm like, okay, so the cloud. It's always it's in the cloud. And thinking, oh, the cloud of witnesses took on a whole new perspective. And thinking of, of videos and, and blog posts and, and social media interactions and comments and, and so on that are now stored in the cloud. And we do have a glorious cloud of witnesses. If we'll simply tap into it. So if you can't go, then send. Now the word for one who is sent is an apostle. And even though the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles hasn't yet been formed, it won't be for another three years, it, the Lord uses that word. And so in 63, as I said unto mine apostles, even so I say unto you, for you are mine apostles, even God's high priests. Ye are they whom my Father hath given me. Ye are my friends. Speaking of synonyms, he just gave us a bunch of them. Apostles, he's not using the term technically because they haven't been ordained. No one's been ordained to that office yet. Like I said, that's 1835. But in terms of like, oh, you know what? All you guys coming back from missions and rearing up, gearing up to go out and do it again. This is, this is a beautiful piece of deja vu for me. It reminds me of 1800 years ago when I was sending forth my apostles. And they went out. I mean, here he corrects it. It's like, I, you're, technically, you're my high priests. Apostles will come. But even more than that, because you're being sent out and because you're responding to that invitation, I can call you my friends. It's a beautiful thing to go from my servant to my friend. He'll use that word again in a moment. Back to verse 64. Therefore, as I said unto mine apostles, I say unto you again, so gear up, there's going to be a lot of repetition from the New Testament, that every soul who believeth on your words and is baptized by water for the remission of sins, shall receive the Holy Ghost. Because remember, if you receive my servants, then you receive me, and you receive the Father, and all that he has. This is the same kind of process. They believe on your words, they've received you, and therefore they receive the Holy Ghost. What else happens? 65. These signs shall follow them that believe. And the following is important. Remember, signs come after belief, that this is faith-seeking understanding, not, not sign-seeking in hopes of someday gaining faith. 
We receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. Faith precedes the miracle. That's all there. Faith or signs shall follow them that believe. And here's some of them. 66. In my name they shall do many wonderful works. In my name they shall cast out devils. In my name they shall heal the sick. In my name they shall open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. And the tongue of the dumb shall speak. Do you see the phrase that got repeated over and over and over? in my name, because those are my friends, my apostles, my sent ones, sent to act in my name, through my authority. We're back to this priesthood idea. And it's in my name that they'll do all these incredible things that missionaries do, that servants of the Lord do, not just full-time missionaries, but, but member missionaries too. They do wonderful works. Wonder, full of wonder, things that just make people scratch their head like, what? Why would you come over and help me move? I don't even know you. Oh, you will. And now you do. We're just here to serve. They'll cast out devils. So much of this can be taken in a, such a symbolic vein, and not just the literal ones, but to, to help free people from their addictions, there's casting out the devil. To help them overcome pettiness in their marriage, there's casting out a devil. Healing the sick, oh, the sin-sick soul, the emotionally infirm, those struggling with mental illness, all of that can be healing the sick. Or in 69 and 70, helping people really see the truths, the glories of God, helping them hear the voice of God as his true sheep, helping them speak in the name of God themselves. It's incredible what happens there. 71 and 72, again, a parallel from what he said to the apostles in his day. If any man shall administer poison unto them, it shall not hurt them. The poison of a serpent shall not have power to harm them. Now, some people take all of that literally. There are actually groups, especially in, in rural areas of the southern United States, where there are snake handlers, and that's part of their religious worship. They want to take that exactly literally. And as I've said, usually there is a literal component to these things, but also a symbolic one. The literal one might have actually struck Joseph Smith personally, because as part of this journey back from Missouri, where he was sitting in council with the saints about literary, you know, the United Firm and literary and mercantile uh, responsibilities, on his journey back to uh, Kirtland, where this revelation comes, he actually has to stay put for a couple of months in the middle of the journey because his traveling companion got thrown off the stagecoach and broke his leg, and Joseph decided to stay there with him to help him recuperate. That, that's a good friend. Uh, but as they are there, at one point, Joseph is poisoned. Somebody tried to kill him, and he's poisoned. And thankfully, through the administration of the priesthood, he's healed. So when he, when he gets this revelation, it's like, hey, if anybody administers poison to them, it won't hurt them. He's like, well, it hurt a little. But I was saved. So yes, there's a literal component here. But also the, the symbolic. Think of the kinds of poisons that the adversary is introducing into our culture. Especially if we use that language from the Book of Mormon, poison by degrees. Just slowly, drop by drop, getting it into us so that we don't even recognize that he's, that he's poisoning us to death. I mean, that's the ultimate serpent. And so the poison of a serpent, to think of the adversary and what he's doing to try to poison us by degrees, true disciples of Jesus Christ will be immune to that. Now be careful. This isn't meant to make you be seen of man. 
in verse uh, 73, he says, A commandment I give unto them, that they shall not boast themselves of these things, neither speak them before the world, for these things are given unto you for your profit and, your, and for salvation. Remember, the signs are supposed to follow belief, not instigate it. So we're not publicizing these things. We're not speaking them upon the rooftops to say, See, we've got all these power. this power. You should come and, come and see. Now, this is for you. It's your profit, your salvation. Hold it to yourself. In verse 74, Verily, verily, I say unto you, They who believe not on your words, and are not baptized in water in my name for the remission of their sins, that they may receive the Holy Ghost, shall be damned, and shall not come into my Father's kingdom, where my Father and I am. There's receive and, and be exalted, or there's reject and be damned. And again, take that word damnation with a grain of salt every time because of what we know about the degrees of glory and so on. Just a, a cessation of progress here. They've damned themselves. I'm not receiving. And like we already saw, there must have been some corrosion on their, on their tuning fork because it's only sin that would keep them from responding. Then verse 75, this revelation unto you and commandment is in force from this very hour upon all the world. And the gospel is unto all who have not received it. So it's go time. Time to, to head out and preach the gospel. Yes, there have been so many missionary sections up to this point. At the beginning of the first year or two of church uh, history, so many Doctrine and Covenants revelations. Go out, think of greatest worth, go preach the gospel, cry repentance. Labor all your days. Well, we see an uptick now as missions. We're going to go very shortly. We're going to be going not just to, to eastern states, but we're going to be crossing the Atlantic and, and heading to, to the British Isles. We're going to be going to Europe. We're going to hit the Isles of the Sea. This has to go to all the world. The gospel needs to be preached to all who have not received it. Verse 76, But verily I say unto all those to whom the kingdom has been given, from you it must be preached unto them, that they shall repent of their former evil works, for they are to be upbraided for their evil hearts of unbelief, and your brethren in Zion for their rebellion against you at the time I sent you. Yes, there may be unbelief among non-members, but there is rebellion among members. And now we're back to the sinning against greater light and receiving greater condemnation. So repentance needs to be preached in all directions, including within the, the household of faith. 77, again I say unto you, my friends. So now we're back to that beautiful title. For from henceforth I shall call you friends. It is expedient that I give unto you this commandment, that you may become even as my friends in days when I was with them, traveling to preach the gospel in my power. So another connection back. You... New apostles, sent ones. Ah, oh, you remind me of the old apostles. My new friends. You remind me of my old friends. And as I told them, so I say to you. I get, like I said before, there's something powerful about that title. I want to be a friend of Christ. Speaking to those former friends, those ancient day friends, Jesus said to them, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Interesting that that's how the Lord distinguishes between servants and friends. Servants don't have to be told. The master doesn't have to explain things to them. They just get their marching orders and go. But friends are open with one another. Friends can finish each other's sentences, right? Friends, are, they're on the same wavelength. Well, that's what we're getting at. 
And so not just servants go out and be obedient objects, become proactive agents. Let me tell you what I'm doing and then go and do that likewise. Let me let you in on the mysteries of godliness. Let me give you my authority and my name, my power, my, my godliness, and go out and live like me and think like me and, and preach like me, inviting other people to come unto me as well. That's what friends do. A more command to those friends, verse 78, For I suffered them, my old ones, and now you new ones, not to have purse or scrip, neither two coats. Purse is where you keep your money. Scrip is where you keep your stuff. You don't need money. You don't need stuff. You don't even need two coats. One would be good. Uh, there'll be some wintertime uh, missionary excursions as well. But you don't need to go above and beyond those kinds of things because I'll provide for you. 79, I send you out to prove the world and the laborer is worthy of his hire. You're out proving the world, testing them, seeing if they have faith. Well, it only seems fitting that I would test you and prove you to see if you'll have faith. You're, you're promising God will provide a testimony for you. Well, you put your money where your mouth is. Or in this case, your lack of money where your empty mouth is. Uh, are you hungry? Just trust. I will provide. I'll fill that mouth with both food and with words. Verse 80, any man that shall go and preach this gospel of the kingdom and fail not to continue faithful in all things shall not be weary in mind, neither darkened, neither in body, limb, joint. A hair of his head shall not fall to the ground unnoticed, and they shall not go hungry, neither athirst. After all, if you're faithful and magnify your callings within these priesthoods, I told you I would sanctify you by the Spirit and renew your body. I'm saying the same thing here. I'll be, I'll be here for you. No darkened mind. Remember he said that earlier. Minds have been darkened in time past. No, you, you're, you're enlightened now by the Spirit. Body, limb, joint, hair. It's all, I'm keeping track of everything. You won't go hungry. You won't go with thirst. So, verse 81, take no thought for the morrow. For what you shall eat or what you shall drink or wherewithal you shall be clothed. Is sounding like the New Testament? It should. He continues, For consider the lilies of the field. Uh, now we're back to the Sermon on the Mount. How they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And the kingdoms of the world in all their glory are not arrayed like one of these. Your Father who is in heaven knoweth that you have need of all these things. Therefore, let the morrow take thought for the things of itself. I've got you covered. Now, this isn't some blanket statement like, ah, don't worry about the future. Don't prepare at all. No, prepare yourselves and every needful thing, he'll say in another revelation. He, he wants us to count the cost. He wants, I mean, a, a year's supply of food or prepare ye, prepare ye, right? Uh, obtain the word before you declare it. There's a whole lot of preparation that goes on. But as a full-time missionary, when it's go time, when you have more important things to do than the, the check your bank account statement, I'll cover for you. I'll take care of you. And that is the case. We no longer go strictly by with, with no purse or script. There's some legal issues there and vagrancy laws and so on. But it is interesting to see members of the church and how frequently they provide for the full-time missionaries that are serving among them. 
I remember the closest I ever got was one particular companion of mine. He was a workhorse. And we decided, why do we need an hour for lunch and an hour for dinner? Let's just stay out and work from 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. Let's just do 12-hour days. We don't have to come back to the apartment and eat. I'm sure people will feed us. And sure enough, you name it. Not just members, but kind non-members. And it's not like we were begging, like, please... Uh, feed a poor servant of the Lord. Oh, we're just going through neighborhoods. We're outside somebody's door and they're like, hey, have you eaten yet? Come on in. We got some arroz y habichuelas. Uh, there's food for you. And just kind, generous people. Whether or not they were interested in the gospel, they were interested in helping. There's a call to conscience. Ah, they, maybe they were responding to our message even more than either one of us realized. One step closer to the Father. But in broad terms, trust that the Lord will provide. Now, if those things seem to be temporal, look at verse 85, and here's the spiritual aspect of God providing for us. And I love verse 85. Of all the promises God makes to missionaries, this is the one I think I doubted most before my mission and finished my mission with absolutely no doubt about it. Verse 85, the promise is, Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say, but treasure up in your minds continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very hour that portion that shall be meted unto every man. I testify of the truth of that promise. Now, make sure you read the whole thing. Some people skip around and they like the beginning. Take no thought beforehand what you'll say. Awesome. I don't have to write a talk. I don't have to prepare a lesson. I don't have to know anything. Because, now skip to the end, God will just tell me. This is the open your mouth and it shall be filled. Well, there may have been times in your life where you've opened your mouth, yes, but it was filled with your foot. And you said something that you regretted or like that's, that did not come out very well. Don't skip the middle phrase. Yeah, take no thought. But treasure up in your mind continually the words of life. You better put it in there. When Jesus is teaching the apostles of the Last Supper and he says that the Holy Ghost is there to bring all things to your remembrance... Ah, well, if he's helping you remember, then we must have put it in there to start. It's like taking a test in college and you're praying, Heavenly Father, you promised to bring all things to my remembrance. And he's like, well, yeah, if it was there to begin with, you never put it in there to start. There's nothing to remember here. Well, in this case, are we continually treasuring up the words of life? Is it just in there somewhere? I, I call scripture study a stockpiling of scriptural principles. They're just in there. And when you meet somebody or you're talking to someone and you just have this prayer in your heart, Heavenly Father, please remind me of something I read. Bring to my remembrance. I will open my mouth. And even if I'm not totally sure what I'm going to say, I trust that if there's enough in there, the Spirit will bring out whatever it is that they needed. And I had so many experiences in the mission field. And ever since, I, I just know that this is true from personal experience. It can be a scary thing to go into a congregation of some other denomination and just go, okay, Q&A, ask the Mormon anything, and just trust that the Lord will put in your mouth something that you had put in your mind years before, some scripture, some insight, putting together pieces that had never come together to form a whole before. I, I wish I had time to share more of those experiences. I'll give you one. And it was with a woman that we shared the first uh, discussion with, gave her a Book of Mormon. She was so excited about it. 
this is on my my full-time mission. And I came, we came back and wanted to see how she was doing. And she gave us back the Book of Mormon and said, I, I don't want it. You keep it. I know it's not true. And it's like, oh, wait, what? What did, what did you read? And she said, I got through the, four, the first four chapters of 1 Nephi. And I'm like, man, most people don't give up until they hit the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. No. Uh, but it was like, what could you have possibly read in the first four chapters of 1 Nephi that made you convinced that the Book of Mormon was false? And then it hit me. And she confirmed it. It was when Nephi was commanded to kill Laban. And she just said, there is no way God would command one of his servants to kill someone else. Thou shalt not kill? Joseph Smith must have forgot that one when he made up the Book of Mormon. And I was like, well, I've heard this from, from a few other people before. And I said, well, what about Abraham and Isaac? God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so God can do this. And unlike other people I'd said this to, she just snapped back and said, yeah, but then God didn't make him go through with it. That's fine for a test, but don't. No, there's not going to be a fulfillment of that false command. I was like, oh, ouch, okay. Um, oh, David and Goliath. Well, how about that one? God, uh, David does kill Goliath, and God still chooses him and so on. And I thought I had her, and she's like, no, that was war, and that's different. Laban was asleep, passed out. He was a, a, a defenseless, and, and Nephi just kills him at God's command? Huh. Well, by now, I'm like, uh, turned to my companion. He, he was no help. So I'm like, um, what do I say? And then it hit me. Oh, well, it says it right there in, third, in First Nephi that, that better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. He gave us the answer already. Laban was standing in the way of God. Nephi needed the scriptures. And so ne Laban had to be removed. Uh, and she thought for a second and said, well, okay, I can understand why... Nephi needs the scriptures and why Laban's in the way. But then let God do it. God is in charge of life and death. If, if Laban needs to be killed, let God do it. Don't put his blood on Nephi's hands. Well, she had a point. And by then I was kind of ready to wave my white flag and say, hey, do you have any neighbors that haven't read 1 Nephi chapter 4 uh, that we can start over with? And, and I, I thought I was none. But it was one of those, open your mouth. Let it be filled. And I'm like, uh, it's been open and it's been filled with stuff that she shoots down every time. But again, just open it. Give it a shot. So I found myself saying to her, okay, uh, great question. Um, you're mad at Nephi and you think what he did was wrong. And I'm kind of buying time in my head like, okay, Heavenly Father, any, any, any time now, please Give me that portion that shall be meted unto every man. I have spent years trying to treasure up in my mind continually the words of life. I've studied scripture since I was a kid. I love this stuff. I just don't know what to say to this woman. Please help me. And I'm just kind of babbling as I'm having the silent prayer in my mind. And I suddenly find myself saying things like, So you're mad at Nephi. You think you did something wrong. So you want to take him to court. Okay, let's do it. And I'm going, where am I going with this? Let's take Nephi to court. But please remember, this is 600 BC, so this is a mosaic court of law. This is Old Testament. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of period. So, and in fact, before we put Nephi uh, on trial, let's put Laban on trial first, shall we? Now again, this is just kind of coming out. I'm wondering why. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I said, well, what had Laban already done? Laban 
had, had tried to kill Laman the first time. And then he tried to kill all the brothers the second time. Uh, so what's that? Five counts of attempted murder. And according to the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's death penalty for that. Uh, he stole all of their stuff. And according to Old Testament law of its day, there's serious punishment for theft, especially on that kind of a level. Uh, what else? Um, when, ooh, how's, how about this one? When Laban accused Laman the first time of being a thief and said, I will kill you and sent his guards after him. That was a false accusation. I mean, yeah, Laman had his problems, but we, he wasn't a thief. He wasn't trying to steal the brass plates. And according to the Old Testament law of Moses, if you falsely accuse someone else, then you have to face whatever penalty you were, you were giving them. It was a great way to keep people from false accusation. And so when Laban, when Laban said, you're a thief, that's a false accusation. I'm going to kill you. Oh, that's the punishment then that Laban has to face. So I don't know how many counts now of capital punishment we're up to. But Laban, according to the period, the, the law of his day, deserved to die. And according to the Old Testament law of his day, who was the one that was supposed to execute the penalty? The prophet and the witness. And which was Nephi? He was both. So you can take God completely out of this and just take Nephi to court like you want to do. And he's going to get off scot-free for simply executing judgment and justice according to the law of his time period. And she sat there and wheels were turning and said, Whoa, okay, that makes perfect sense. Can I have my book back? And we gave her the Book of Mormon. And I just remember walking out of that house as my companion is looking at me going like, oh. and I'm looking up going like, oh. and he's like, where did you get all that? And I go, I have no idea. I didn't know any of that stuff before the conversation started. Uh, I, I was just excited to see what I was going to say next. It was one of those incredible open your mouth and let it be filled. But I had read the Old Testament several times before my mission, and it was in there somewhere. I had treasured up the words of life, and there was something for the Spirit to draw upon to meet the needs of that person. And I've been amazed if we'll simply do our part to obtain the word and then show our part in willingness to declare the word, then the word himself will give you the words that you need to share. That's one of the most exhilarating experiences we ever have. He then sums up this part by repeating what he said at the beginning, 86, Therefore let no man among you, for this commandment is unto all the faithful who are called of God in the church unto the ministry. From this hour take purse or scrip that goeth forth to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom. So there's just the reiteration. What did I start with? Don't worry about what you're, what you're supposed to bring. Don't worry about purse or scrip. Just go. I will provide. And that's a promise across the board. Verse 87, he continues to give them oh, missionary direction. Behold, I send you out to reprove the world of all their unrighteous deeds and to teach them of a judgment which is to come. That's all part of crying repentance, helping them feel convicted by their conscience. We're not trying to shame them or guilt trip them. We're teaching truth. And as they juxtapose light and darkness, then they start to see, ah, this is where I've fallen short. Verse 88, Whoso receiveth you, there I will be also. For I will go before your face. 
I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and mine angels round about you to bear you up. I know President Thomas S. Monson loved that verse and felt it keenly in his own ministry, but that can be true for all of us. To know God is before us, behind us, left side, right side, angels above us, bearing us up, surrounding us, round about. I loved my companions in the mission field, but the greatest companion I came to know personally was the companionship of Christ through the Holy Ghost. How can you fail when that's the case? Verse 89, Whoso receiveth you, receiveth me. Echo of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And the same will feed you, and clothe you, and give you money. And, verse 90, He who feeds you, or clothes you, or gives you money, and I promise there will be those who do it, shall in no wise lose his reward. That, to me, is part of the genius of going on a mission with less than what you need whether it's on, on a, the full-on level of no purse or script, or whether it's, I'm going to have to have some members helping me with food now and then. And that's typical across the board in, among missionaries these days. But what does it do? Basically, it's making room for other people to contribute. You see, here's the challenge. I think so often when we, ha when we have a kind of a givers and a receiver mentality, that it becomes sort of master-slave. Like, look at all I have and all you need. And, it, and, and unfortunately, it only goes one way. It's like, I'm here to preach the gospel to you. You don't have the gospel. You are incomplete, and you need me to fill in the holes. Well, that's, that's an inequality that, that can cause some problems and pride from above and pride from below and so on. So imagine equalizing it in a certain way, kind of consecration-esque, so to speak. I do have some things that you don't have some spiritual truths that will bless your life, but you have some things that I don't have. And as you help provide for me, just as I help provide for you, there's an equality, there's a oneness. What I love about it is it's, it's a suggestion and a reminder that the person you're there to serve is there to serve you too. That you have something to offer them, but they have something to offer you. And it's not just food or drink or money or clothes or those kinds of things. It's, it's truth. It's experience. It's an opportunity to serve. It's one of the things I loved about Clayton Christensen's great book about the power of everyday missionaries. He said in some places, especially in certain affluent areas, if you go with them like, hey, you're needy. No, believe me, you really are. You don't have the gospel and you need this. And so let us teach you. That doesn't often come across very well. People think they have everything. And even though they don't, they don't recognize the stuff that they're missing. But they do recognize what they have. And often, again, as there's, there's a call to conscience here, there's a light of Christ within them that resonates with truth. If you give them an opportunity to serve, that's what they gravitate to. So instead of saying, what can we do for you? It's, could you help us serve someone else? We're helping a family move in and we could really use your muscles. Or we're trying to figure out this problem among our community of, of, of saints, and I think your skill set would really help. Would you come and help us? And the way Clayton Christensen describes it is, oh, in his experience, so many people gravitate to that. Not the call to receive, but the call to give. And by going with less on our part, we're recognizing that you have something to provide. That can go so far beyond the, the financial or the physical. We should think of ways, how do we help people give and not just receive? 
as they give, there's their reward. Now, 91, he that doeth not these things is not my disciple. By this ye may know my disciples. So here's another way to distinguish. Will you hear my voice or reject it? Will you respond and gravitate toward light? Or will you, will you, are you held back by the bondage of sin? Will you give to someone in need? That's just conscience calling. Or will you not? By this you may know my disciples. If they have love one to another. It's not just how they respond vertically to God's calls, but how they respond horizontally to someone in need even if it's just giving a cup of water to a hot, sweaty missionary. I met, there was hardly, I don't know if I ever met a Puerto Rican that wouldn't at least do that. And giving people the opportunity to do that is like a, they're responding to their higher nature, the light of Christ. Now, 92, he that receiveth you not. Well, there are those that, that will reject and not respond. Go away from him, alone, by yourself, and cleanse your feet even with water, pure water whether in heat or in cold, and bear testimony of it unto your Father which is in heaven, and return not again unto that man. So this is like the dusting off of the feet. They would have nothing to do with me, and so I can have nothing to do with them. 93. In whatsoever village or city ye enter, do likewise. Now this is not something that we do as missionaries. We can leave it all in the Lord's hands there. Verse 94. Nevertheless, Search diligently and spare not. This is what we can do. We can do everything in our power. Search diligently. Don't, don't hold back. Spare not. And woe unto that house or that village or city that rejecteth you or your words or your testimony concerning me. Woe, I say again, unto that house or that village or city that rejecteth you or your words or your testimony of me. Two times he repeats that warning. This is how he distinguishes sheep from goats. Right hand from left. Verse 96, for I, the Almighty, have laid my hands upon the nations to scourge them for their wickedness. I'm trying to wake up the world, shake them up, destabilize them enough that they, they, they get out of their wicked ways and have to make some decisions here. 97, plagues shall go forth. They shall not be taken from the earth until I have completed my work, which shall be cut short in righteousness. We just experienced another one of those with the COVID-19 pandemic. And how many more will there be in the future? I have no idea. There have been so many others in the past as the Lord continues to wake up the world, as he tries to prepare the earth to complete his work, and then the end, which he cuts short in righteousness. This is the hastening of the day. This is the unplug the scoreboard because the other side has more momentum, right? We got to stop this thing. If, if those days are not shortened, no flesh shall be saved. Remember that haunting phrase? And yet he keeps prolonging. Why? Because we keep procrastinating the day of our repentance. We've talked about this several times in these lessons, that God is caught between a rock and a hard place. His justice and his mercy to the righteous, wanting him to cut short the work in righteousness, but also his mercy to the unrighteous, trying to prolong things so they have time to repent. No wonder we need to be out beating the bushes. We need to be out crying repentance so that God can cut short his work in righteousness. In 98, how does that end? Until all shall know me who remain, even from the least unto the greatest, and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye. 
and shall lift up their voice, and with the voice together sing this new song. Sounds like we're getting closer and closer to this sea of glass. A perfect knowledge of the Lord, a knowledge of each other, of seeing eye to eye, of lifting up the voice. Isaiah talks about this. Abinadi repeats it. Some powerful verses, ideas here. But here we get the lyrics to the song of redeeming love. This new song that we sing when we see eye to eye, when, we, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. I wish I knew the melody. I'm sure the Spirit will help provide that when it's time to sing. But how about the lyrics? 99 through 102. The Lord hath brought again Zion. There's a restoration of my people that all these other restorations are for. The Lord hath redeemed his people, Israel, according to the election of grace. It's not because of everything we did to earn salvation. We were chosen out of the grace of God. And that election of grace was brought to pass by the faith and covenant of their fathers. I love those words in 99. Grace, faith, covenant. Verse 100, the Lord hath redeemed his people. And Satan is bound, and time is no longer. Can you sense this millennial hymn? The Lord hath gathered all things in one. The Lord hath brought down Zion from above. The Lord hath brought up Zion from beneath. What do you think we're doing in Missouri? We're trying to establish Zion built so it can have a reunion with Zion brought. May the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come. This song is the fulfillment of that. Verse 101, the earth hath travailed and brought forth her strength. Truth is established in her bowels, and the heavens have smiled upon her. She is clothed with the glory of her God, for he stands in the midst of his people. You sense the 10th article of faith, the millennial verse, the earth being renewed and receiving its paradisical glory. But you also get, at least I get the sense from oh, Enoch's vision, in Moses chapter 7, in it the Lord says, Righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth to bear testimony of mine only begotten. That verse is typically interpreted as truth coming from the earth. Well, there's that voice from the dust. There's the Book of Mormon, the new covenant that we just studied about earlier in this revelation. The earth has travailed and brought forth her strength. Truth established in her bowels. Joseph brought it forth when he translated the Book of Mormon. And then righteousness from heaven? Well, there's revelation. There's restoration of priesthood from heavenly messengers. So whether you see it from Enoch's version, whether you see it here in this heavenly song, truth established in the earth's bowels, heaven smiling upon her, the earth clothed in the glory of God, and him in the midst where Jesus will reign personally upon the earth, once Zion, the new Jerusalem, is built upon the American continent. It's, Tenth Article of Faith sums it all up well. And then verse 102, and this would make for a great chorus, repeated at the end of every one of its previous verses. Glory and honor and power and might be ascribed to our God, for he is full of mercy, justice, grace, and truth, and peace forever and ever. Amen. That sounds a lot like the songs we were singing in pre-mortality when the Lion of the tribe of Judah prevailed to open the book with the seven seals. That's Revelation chapter 5. 
Are we casting our crowns at his feet? Such a beautiful list of attributes that belong to God and that he's trying to infuse in us through the ordinances of the priesthood, the power of godliness made manifest. In some ways, that is the climax of this revelation. He could have stopped on that high note, and I use the word note advisedly. There, there is the new song being sung. But kind of decrescendo, he comes back down like, okay, sorry, got a little ahead of myself. That's the millennial reign, and man, that's a song that just comes off the tongue when every time I think about it. I know you're not quite there yet. Your mind's still a little darkened, still got some stuff to repent of, need to repent and remember the new covenant. Okay, I'll try to be patient. I'm Sorry, I, I really do want to cut the work short in righteousness, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So let's get back to it. Verse 103, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, it is expedient that every man who goes forth to proclaim mine everlasting gospel, that inasmuch as they have families and receive money by gift, I told you that kind people would contribute, that they should send it unto them or make use of it for, them, for their benefit as the Lord shall direct them, for thus it seemeth me good. Interesting to think that even missionaries might receive a surplus. People might be more generous with you than you need. To me, it happened every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. It's like, I already ate like three Christmas dinners. I really don't need another one, please. Uh, but we tried. If people are overly generous for these missionaries, then send the excess back to your family. They're, they're in need. They're without you. And we saw earlier that the church itself is supposed to help provide for the families of missionaries that are gone. But if you can help that from your side of things too, then all the better. In verse 104, let all those who have not families who receive money, so you don't have family to send it back to, then please don't still spend it on yourself. Instead, send it up unto the bishop in Zion or unto the bishop in Ohio, Bishop Partridge, Bishop Whitney, either one would, will know what to do with it, that it may be consecrated for the bringing forth of the revelations and the printing thereof and for establishing Zion. Believe me, the united firm will know just what to do with it. Mercantile, literary, spiritual, temporal, that, those funds, that surplus will be in good hands, so consecrate it. They'll turn it into a stewardship that can then continue to produce benefit for the entire church. 105, if any man shall give unto any of you a coat or a suit, take the old, cast it unto the poor, go on your way rejoicing. You still don't need more than one. If you got a new one, then make good use of the old one. Freely you have received, so freely give. And 106, if any man among you be strong in the spirit, let him take with him him that is weak, that he may be edified in all meekness, that he may become strong also. Just like there are temporal inequalities and someone wealthier can help you and then you can help the poor, so too there are spiritual inequalities. And so if you're strong, take with you someone who is weak so that they can be strengthened by you. It makes me rethink the fact that I had all good companions. Maybe I was the weak one every step of the way. And they helped me. In verse 107, Therefore take with you those who are ordained unto the lesser priesthood. Send them before you to make appointments and to prepare the way and to fill appointments that you yourselves are not able to fill. They are in charge of the preparatory gospel after all. Well, they can do some preparing of the way for the Melchizedek priesthood ordinances that will follow in their wake. I've seen Melchizedek priesthood holders do that with their Aaronic priesthood companions when it came to home teaching or ministering. And it's trying to help those 
that our junior companions, so to speak, get up to speed. Uh, verse 108, Behold, this is the way that mine apostles in ancient days built up my church unto me. That's a beautiful insight. How did the Christian church go from a small uh, company of, of disciples to a community of Christians that surrounded the Mediterranean and from there spread across the earth? It was the strong strengthening the weak. Go and do thou likewise. In 109, therefore let every man stand in his own office and labor in his own calling. Let not the head say to the feet, it hath no need of the feet. For without the feet, how shall the body be able to stand? Also the body hath need of every member, that all may be edified together, that the system may be kept perfect. This is what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians. This is what Jesus taught in section 46. Everyone has spiritual gifts, so everyone needs to be invited. Bring together the members of the body of Christ. We want the system to be kept perfect. In 111, behold, the high priests should travel. Also the elders, also the lesser priests. Now deacons and teachers, let them be appointed to watch over the church, to be standing ministers unto the church. Remember there's a need for Zion to enlarge its borders, but also to strengthen its stakes. We need to spread branches, but also we need to deepen roots. So yes, some of you go out and proclaim the gospel. Others of you stay home and perfect the saints. And there's a Melchizedek, Aaronic divide even in that. Guess we could add that to our chart. In 112, here's for a specific missionary call. The bishop, Newell K. Whitney, also should travel round about and among all the churches, searching after the poor to administer to their wants by humbling the rich and the proud. So again, back to a temporal inequality and consecration, the rich can help provide for the poor. But I do love the verb that's given to Bishop Whitney there, not just to travel around, but to search after the poor. I think too often we are reactive rather than proactive in our missionary work, in our service, in, in so many of the things we do. I mean, I'm happy to help as soon as somebody asks me. Well, of course I would contribute, if only I knew the need. Well, rest assured, the needs are all around you. The poor are with you always, so go find them. Now that's a tall order for any bishop. From Newell K. Whitney on down to the, the most recently called on earth. That's where Elders Quorum and Relief Study Presidencies come in. That's where every ministering couple or companionship comes in. To search after the poor. The poor in money, the poor in food, the poor in spirit, the poor in friends, the poor in anything. Silver and gold have I none, but I can give you what I've got. And I can search out and find them and alert the bishop to their needs. Alert the community of saints, the body of Christ, to those needs so we can help meet them together. We've got to be more proactive in all of that. 113, he should also employ an agent to take charge and do his secular business as he shall direct. I mean, Bishop Whitney, you're in charge of the Whitney store. It's now the Bishop's storehouse. It's gone from your store to the store. Uh, and now I'm calling you on a mission. It's gonna be a brief one. Joseph Smith's actually gonna go with him. It's pretty amazing, uh, good companionship there. And they're gonna go east and preach in several cities that he's about to name here. But in the meantime, somebody's gotta run the, the, run the store. And so employ an agent. It's actually a detail about the parable of the lost sheep we sometimes forget about. That in leaving the ninety and nine to go after the one, the Lord, the, 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 the good shepherd would have to make sure that there are under shepherds back at home. Otherwise, 
Now you got 99 more lost sheep after you found the one that was missing originally. There do need to be agents at home as others go abroad. And where did they go? 114. Let the bishop go unto the city of New York, also to the city of Albany, and also to the city of Boston, and warn the people of those cities with the sound of the gospel, with a loud voice of the desolation and utter abolishment which awaits them, if they do reject these things. For if they do reject these things, the hour of their judgment is nigh, and their house shall be left unto them desolate. Now I'm amazed how strong that is, and how specific that is. For any of you saints that are living in New York City, or in Albany, or in Boston, uh, is this verse supposed to make you nervous? I don't know. Now remember, it's conditional. If you reject these things, then beware of desolation and utter abolishment. Years later, Wilfred Woodruff did, did warn even more specifically than this specific verse. Uh, I guess reminding the saints of it, he said, oh yeah, New York, Albany, and Boston. Well, let me be more specific. In, in the visions that I'm seeing of this, New York is destroyed by earthquake, Albany by fire, and uh, Boston by tidal wave. And it's like, wait, what? Now, the fact we have a temple in New York City and a temple in Boston should reassure us that the Lord hasn't completely uh, removed his, his presence from those beautiful cities. I've never been to Albany, but I do love New York and Boston. And perhaps there's a level of, oh, how many righteous people can you find in Sodom, uh, Abraham? Because if you have enough, then I'll spare everyone uh, across the board. We've got a lot of saints in these cities, too. But there is a need for all of it. And this isn't just for those three cities. I mean, you could say that of, of anything. What do you say back in section 45? There's no, nowhere on earth will you be free of war and, and calamity unless you're in Zion. And again, Zion is the pure in heart, not just all hunkering down in western Missouri. But it is interesting here to, to realize just how careful the Lord is being in crying repentance. And that's the mission that Bishop Whitney and Joseph Smith go on. They go to these three cities and they cry repentance. Now, 116, let him trust in me and he shall not be confounded. A hair of his head shall not fall to the ground unnoticed. Repetition of that beautiful promise he made earlier. And 117 has a phrase that I just love. Verily I say unto you, the rest of my servants, that includes us, go ye forth as your circumstances shall permit in your several callings unto the great and notable cities and villages. So it's not just those three that I listed. Reproving the world in righteousness of all their unrighteous and ungodly deeds. Well, that's hard, convincing the wicked of their wickedness. But then this last phrase, setting forth clearly and understandingly the desolation of abomination in the last days. Now that's the part that just grabs my attention. The desolation of abominations uh, is a phrase that Daniel uses in the Old Testament. It's repeated in, in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is talking about the signs of the times and the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. It's like a desolation. He said at the end of 115, right? It shall be left unto them desolate but a desolation that is so intense that it is abominable. Or, flip it around, abominations that are so deplorable that it leaves the world desolate. I mean, chicken and egg, either one you want to start with. But a desolation of abominations is, what, is how Jerusalem was described when it was destroyed by Rome. I mean, leveling the temple, the streets flowing with blood. It was an original holocaust. And it was 
and a, a desolation of abominations. And as Jesus says in that Matthew 24 Olivet Discourse, that's the preview of coming attractions when it means destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. We have to wake up the world for the conflict of justice. We have to cry repentance, which includes convincing them of the error of their ways. But notice the adverbs, and this is the part that, that grabs my attention. There's a lot of words in 117 about how important it is to share these things. We, we know what we're supposed to be saying, more or less, crying repentance. But how are we to do it? Here's where the adverbs come in. Clearly and understandingly. Now, I've had some fascinating conversations with my students at Institute about those two words. And like, okay, what does he mean by that? Clearly and understandingly. And usually, if we just kind of skim over it, it's like, that sounds redundant. Um, am I being clear? Do they understand? i got to make sure they get it. And unfortunately, if that's how we read the verse, then sometimes we come down a little too strong on things. And we are just condemning. And yes, we are reproving the world. But I'm not sure if we're doing it in righteousness. Remember how Paul said it to the Ephesians? Speaking the truth in love... That's a powerful contrary. Some of us are really good at speaking the truth, but we're jerks about it. Others of us are really good at speaking in love, but we shy away from truth because it might hurt. How do I do both? Well, look at this verse. There's the contrary again. Because it's not clearly and understandably. That would be redundant. I was understandable. I made sure they got it. I was super clear. Yeah, and kind of mean about it. No, it's to be clear. I mean, take the LYs off, and now you've gone from adverb to adjective. So let's just deal with the adjectives. It'll be easier. How are you supposed to teach? Well, teach in such a way that what I say is crystal clear. I need to be clear. But I also need to be understanding. Oh, that's what it was. Not understood. I don't need to be understood. Well, I do need to be understood, but he already said that with clear. I need to be understanding. I need to set these things forth clearly. Yes, that's speaking the truth. But do it understandingly. That's speaking it in love. It's one thing to call someone to repentance. It's one thing to discipline your children. It's one thing to call out somebody for a mistake they've made and to be clear. But to be understanding, that is such a beautiful word. I don't just want you to understand me. I want to understand you. Especially when we're meeting with someone who's struggling or is angry or is oppositional or confrontational. We might want to reverse the order here and make sure you are understanding even before you try to make your positions clear. We have to be better at both. So whichever one of those two you struggle with, work on that one. The revelation then comes to its end in these final three verses. For with you, saith the Lord Almighty, I will rend their kingdoms. I will not only shake the earth, but the starry heavens shall tremble. He's trying to wake us up. This is the alarm clock analogy we studied back in section 43. Or what Elder Uchtdorf said about sleeping through the restoration. No, he's going to wake us up. He'll shake the earth, he'll shake the heavens. And I'll rend their kingdoms. I'm going to pull it away from them. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. He will be king of kings, after all. For as he says in 119, I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. 
It's what this whole revelation has been about, right? Priesthood, missionary work, and the word of God. He's sending forth his hand to exert the powers of heaven. You cannot see it now. And well, that's okay. Have faith. Signs will follow. Yet a little while, and ye shall see it. And know that I am, and that I will come and reign with my people. That's the second coming. And he's promising us of his return. Bank on it. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. What a message from this almighty messenger. I'm Alpha and Omega. We've seen that title repeatedly. I'm start to finish. The priesthood, my power is without beginning of days or end of years. It's who I am. It's the character of Christ. It's the part of the glory of God. And I will be here for the duration. How about you? As I cut my work short in righteousness, will you be among the righteous who prepare the rest of the world for my coming? Will you dust off the scriptures and say and do according to their truths? Will you live up to the privileges that come through the ordinances of the priesthood? If it was bedtime, for all of us, and God were to condescend and sing to us our song, what would he say in that rise up, O men of God? And to all of us, ye saints of God, listen to the lyrics. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God, in one united throng. Bring in the day of brotherhood and end the night of wrong. Rise up, O men of God. Tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, O men of God. I miss singing that song to my boys when they were little. But I pray that the, the tune will still resonate with them as they continue to sing it throughout their lives. Have done with lesser things. Repent of whatever is beneath us, the bondage of sin that is keeping us from responding to the call of Christ. To come together and unite in one united throng. This is Zion we're trying to build, one heart, one mind. And best of all, to trod where Jesus trod, we are brothers and sisters of the Son of Man. And so who are we not to rise up to become more like him? I remember years ago being by myself, this is before my sons were old enough, I was at a priesthood session of general conference in the very back of a large stake center surrounded by strangers but fellow servants of the Lord. And one of the hymns, must have been the congregational hymn because we all sang it together, was Rise Up, O Men of God. And I remember standing together and honestly singing that hymn at the top of my lungs and not feeling shy about it because it felt like everyone else was doing the same. And especially that last verse, as brothers of the Son of Man and feeling that, and feeling with brothers and sisters and all of us, one united throng trying to come into Christ, 
my dear friends, and if we can all consider ourselves friends of Christ, then it is time to rise up as saints of God and to do as God has invited us.